Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be responding to Brother Mike. Uh, Elder Mike, last time I interacted with him, I think he got promoted to Elder Mike from Brother Mike. So congratulations, good job. But Elder Mike, he is an individual who I've interacted with and talked to on several occasions on the subject of open theism. He seems to be maybe like a classic Arminian, not like a follower of Jacob Arminianus, but just someone who's not a Calvinist and who speaks in Arminian terms. Often he speaks like an open theist, but he's uh, vehemently opposed to open theism. He thinks his speech that he does that's, that sounds like open theism is compatible with his alternative view of exhaustive divine foreknowledge. And so he's a good guy. Uh, I like interacting with him. He's he's thoughtful and intelligent. So we'll see what he says here. I have not watched this going in blind. I did show up for like, like the last five minutes of his live stream. And so you'll see some interaction between me and someone random there for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why I get involved in these debates. But um, we're going to go ahead and start. I'm going to kind of skip forward because introductions are always, they always take a long time to get to the point. So go ahead, Elder Mike. Johnson, my brother in the house. God bless you, bro. Robin Williams, bless you. All right. D Proverbs, God bless you. We're Fox skipping in the house. forward. Appreciate you, bro. All right. I'm jumping in. I'm jumping in. I love to see the saints, but I'm going to jump into this lesson. And again, we'll open it up at the end if anyone has any questions i do want Jumping to forward. address it because it is uh has become a topic of great discussion and so uh and then i was talking with gcon he he reminded me he said mike you've been working on that video for a year <laughs> so i said okay let me get to it and so here it is uh tonight so again let us pray thank you i see people in the chat thank you mike ranger let us pray for people Right. Let's pray for people who may may be in error. Listen, you have not always believed everything right. And truth of the matter is you still might not be believing everything right. <laughs> right. The funny thing about that is most open theists are converts from his position. And so he, he's almost trying to talk as if the open theists like grew up open theistic and they just don't know the things that he knows. And uh, if they did know the things that he knows, the information that he's going to put forward, they would convert to his belief as if they didn't already understand and acknowledge and internalize his beliefs from an early age and convert away from that to open theism. So that's interesting. That's one thing you always need to look at uh, when, when, you're, when you're talking about intellectual pursuits. From where are the experts converting to where? That will give you some sort of directional understanding about integrity of positions. If uh, there's an expert converting from one position to another position, that's a better data point than someone who's always had a position who's an expert. Um, they Those types of people tend to be pundits. When there is a change of mind, that's something we should be paying attention to. So let's pray for one another, right? And and, and let's, let's keep Let's keep it moving that way. But this video tonight is not about an individual. It's about the teachings of open theism, right? That's and let's keep it like that. It is about the doctrine of open theism. All right, let's keep it moving. All right, open theism, open theists 
often accuse Orthodox Bible believers of borrowing from Greek <laughs> ideas borrowed from people like Plato. It, it doesn't seem to be starting off this talk about open theism, describing what open theists are. It seems to be just a direct attack against them. On Aristotle. Now, you've heard this. This is one of the most popular attacks against Orthodox Christian believers. Right. They say that we're borrowing from westernized thinking and, and we're borrowing ideas from Plato and Aristotle. And, you know, when we get into God's foreknowledge and and how he's immutable and cannot change, they believe that these ought to be westernized thought or Greek right. thought from Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, not just us. Uh, secular scholarship, such as Christine Hayes, points out that uh, the idea that God doesn't repent in the Bible, it's foreign to the Bible, and you don't get those ideas till Hellenization, till the Greek thought implement or infiltrates the church. And you see that over and over again in biblical scholarship, people explaining this, that these ideas are completely foreign to at least the Old Testament, if not the New Testament, and that they're imports from Greek philosophy. So it's not just open theists. The open theists are literally taking the scholarship position, the scholarship position, not the pundit position, you know, the James Whites of the world who think they're scholars. No, the, the actual scholars who, who read the original languages, who teach in the schools, this is what they teach. The, the open theists have the scholarly position on this. But the truth of the matter is, it's not the Orthodox Christian who's borrowing from Greek thought. <laughs> Advocates of open theism are the real Hellenistic thinkers. The doctrine of God's inability to know the truth comes from one of Aristotle's philosophies. He says, now check this out. This is Aristotle. So um, notice how he's treating it as an either or. He says, oh, oh either, either uh, we are the, are op either open theists are the true Hellenists or we're the true Hellenists. It can't be both. It can't be neither. It's one or the other. If open theists actually borrow from Hellenistic ideas, that means uh, his side does not, which is a, is a non sequitur. But it's interesting. Augustine, in his confessions, literally writes that the Bible was absurd until he read it in light of the works of the Platonists. It, it's, it's all Platonistic. Uh, he, he talks about them. He praises them. There's, a, there's a, a link to an article about how Calvin's use of Plato. He overwhelmingly uses Plato in a positive sense, quote, quotes him favorably. These people love Plato. They love Platonistic ideas. They were dependent on them for a lot of their ideas. They, they quote Plato and Platonism for arguments for their positions. These guys are Platonists, self-admitted. You're not going to find any open theist tradition saying, oh, we champion the works of Cicero. <laughs> What? We champion the works of Aristotle. You're not going to find that. It's He's not going to be able to quote people. We, we quote the primary sources. They just make something up. They just say, see, open theists have this argument. It's kind of like this argument over there. Therefore, open theists are the real Hellenists. It's a non sequitur. Aristotle says, not even a god can know the future. At least the future as it relates to human free actions. So it's actually the open theists who have embraced some Greek thought because they've adopted Aristotle's belief 
that not even a God can know the future. Again, he doesn't show the adoption taking place. He's just making it up. As it pertains to human free actions. This is what open theists purport. They say that because these decisions have not been made, it is impossible to know them. Right? And they believe that that is protecting human free will. Because if God knows the future. So to, to my understanding, Elder Mike's dealt with me, LaRon, Kevin G. Um, that's might be the extent of his open theist interaction. So I'm wondering who's making these arguments to him. It doesn't, he doesn't quite say anytime I've interacted with them, I have uh, focused on the Bible and what the Bible says. And so it's, it's interesting that he'll jump right straight to philosophy rather than biblical open theism then how can our decisions be free? And I'm going to break that down a little more as we go. But remember, church, it's the open theist. They're a, they have adopted Aristotle's <laughs> belief that not even a God can know the future if it relates to human free choices. Yeah, that's it. The open theist, we just read Aristotle. We, we pull out Aristotle's metaphysics and uh, we read it. We're like, oh, Aristotle's metaphysics is, this is so intelligent. And then we adopt it. No, we, we actually got church fathers praising Plato, uh, claiming that they read the Bible in light of Plato, claiming that's, that's where they've got their ideas from God. And that's how we know the Platonic origin of his philosophy, because it's well documented. It's, it's, it's not contested in the scholarly world. Because they think in some way that will restrict free will and human free choices. All right, let's keep moving. Sound theologically minded believers, don't catch this, you all. Sound theologically minded believers have always believed that God has perfect knowledge about the past, present, and the future. That seems like a no true Scotsman fallacy. Well, uh, he says sound theological minded believers. Well, in Calvin's day, Calvin complained about all the open theists running around. Augustine wasn't 30. He wasn't, he didn't encounter the idea of an incorporeal God until he was 30 years old. What were the Christians of his time? What were the laymen believing? Again, I, I've made this point, and I made this point directly to Brother Mike here that the laymen, none of them believed any of this Greek philosophy. It was these elites and the people who were write, writing the history books, the people who were writing the theology books, they believed it. And then they complained about the laymen and the laymen not understanding all their their intricate theology. Again, Augustine did not encounter the idea of an incorporeal God until he was in his 30s. What did the layman believe in Christianity? This is this is an elitist position, elitist position that in a Hellenized world incorporated and saturated with Hellenistic beliefs. These were the rock stars of the day. Justin Martyr said, hey, this, this Plato guy, this is your famed philosopher who, who uh, you guys all love. Plotinus, he held his philosophy sessions in courts, in kingly courts, because this was the philosophy of the elites. Y'all catch this? God has perfect knowledge, not just about the past. Now, the open theists, they'll say, yeah, God knows the past. Open theists will say, yes, God knows the present. But we're going to see if they're even consistent with that. But they'll say God knows the present. But they will also say that God can't know the future as it relates to human decisions because the, those decisions have not been made yet.
So they reject Orthodox Christian omniscience. Again, they'll accuse, they'll say omniscience, you know, that's Greek thought. You know, it's not Greek thought at all. It's okay, so no, there's going to be some conflation. And, and those people who oppose open theism are going to do this Moat and Bailey tactic in which the actual classical omniscience is omniscience, which is ungenerated. It's innate. It's exhaustive. It's uh, uh, eternal. And it's uh, simple, identical to God. But he's describing a different omniscience. Oh, he just knows all past, present, and future. That, that's that's not quite the omniscience that you actually believe in. That That's actual classical omniscience. And so you're building a, a lesser position to defend rather than your actual position. And a lot of open theists will say, yeah, God does know past, present, and future. They, he knows the past is settled, the present as actual, and the future as contingency. And they'll claim that. And that meets his general definition that he threw out right now. And so he actually, he, if he was going to try to be intellectually honest, he would actually explain the details of this classical omniscience, which is classical omniscience, and then explain how he differs from classical omniscience. Uh, does he understand that in classical omniscience, uh, it's a it's a divine, simple act that's identical to God. It's this innate, ungenerated knowledge that's eternal, that uh, unfalsifiable as well. He, God can't know something and then that thing does not materialize. D does he want to... Uh, <laughs> explain to us that that's his actual position and defend that and then explain the nuances and how he sees omniscience versus the classical definition he doesn't want to do that he wants to put out this easier to defend little proposition in my isaiah debate i was very clear to the individual i was going to debate with that i was going to be addressing the classical definition of omniscience and i think that behooved me very well in this debate because I could point out all the times in the Bible where God's thinking. If God thinks, if God has discursive thoughts, then classical omniscience is false. And in his description here, Brother Mike's, he, he doesn't really lay that case out that God's thoughts are non-discursive in one simple eternal act. Because, again, that's that's the harder proposition to defend. He's doing the Moton Valley thing. He wants to affirm classical omniscience. He's not even describing classical omniscience. He's describing a type of omniscience which open theists can readily admit to. And he's claiming that in order to, if, if you're an open theist, you cannot accept his definition of omniscience. You have to reject omniscience. A lot of open theists don't reject the word omniscience. They, they just redefine omniscience or they explain the omniscience differently. And so again, what he's doing is a little bit of a bait and switch. Bible. God has perfect knowledge of the past, present, and the future. God is omniscient. Y'all hear me? Divine omniscience means that God knows all true propositions. And I might, I'm going to get a little technical here, but I'll open it up for questions at the end if anybody... Uh... A lot of open theists will claim, yeah, that's true. God has omniscience in that sense. He knows all true propositions, no false propositions. But then they'll say the future is conditional, so he'll know the future as conditional. And so his definition that he's laying out here is not a blanket combination of open theism, and it's, it's actually word theology. And so think about that as well, that Omniscience is not a word that you find in the Bible. It's it's a word that people, uh, they take little data points from the Bible and then they kind of apply it to this word. 
and then they give a definition to this word. And so trying to argue from definitions back into the Bible is the wrong way to go about <laughs> go about theology. It's, it's not a biblical word. And so if you want to have a concept of omniscience, if you want to affirm omniscience and, and claim it's a biblical omniscience, you're going to have to use the Bible as your definition for that type of omniscience. An exhaustive, simple, ungenerated, non-discursive, simple, eternal, unfalsifiable knowledge of all things is just not in the Bible. It's not anywhere. You're not going to be able to put together a bunch of verses to even prove that. But they're going to uh, define the word that way. They're going to say the Bible says omniscience, and then here's the definition, and then we'll read it back into the Bible. It's word theology. Uh, you know, you don't catch something, right? God knows all true propositions and believes no false proposition. I want y'all to catch that. A proposition is something that is true. All right. The range of God's knowledge is total. There is no lack in God's knowledge, whether it be from the past, present, or the future. He knows that which is, that which was, and that which is to come. The range of God's knowledge is total. He knows all true propositions. All right. Bless you, Billy Ocean. Thank you for the super chat. Now, Let's let's go a little further. Whenever someone knows something, we will label that a proposition. So knowing something is a proposition. I know my name is Mike. That is a proposition. You know that you're watching me on YouTube. That is a proposition. And so we'll, we'll break that down even more as we go. So in order for something uh, in order to know something, at least two propositions must be true. First, a person must believe the proposition. And second, the believed proposition must be true. Believing a proposition is a necessary condition for knowing it, right? For example, if you don't believe today, I have on my slide is Saturday, but if you don't believe today is Monday, you cannot know today is Monday. Knowing a proposition requires believing it. So in order for a proposition uh, or, or in order to know something, the proposition must be true. Right. At the same time, you can't truly have. So I would actually take issue with his definition of knowledge. This is like a classical philosophical definition that knowledge is justified true belief. That's, that's typically how knowledge is defined, and which is a fairly good rule of thumb definition for that. And there's there's a lot of counterexamples that kind of kind of test whether that actually is true, because what if you have good justification for your beliefs, but it turns out that that justification was a facade and you're just coincidentally right about that knowledge? Does, does that make it true or false knowledge? And, and so probably something more like uh, if you have adequate true justifications and uh, corresponding true belief in a proposition, which also happens to be true, uh, something like that's going to be a better definition of knowledge. But you, you get into kind of tricky territory 
when you start talking about future contingencies, because normal human beings are not using this type of knowledge when you say, oh, I know that if uh, I, I go upstairs with some candy, all my girls are gonna run to me and they're gonna like, ah, I would like some candy, please. Um, it, it's This is not based on a true proposition. There's not a true proposition fundamentally behind this type of knowledge. It's, it's just us using our expectations based on probabilities and knowing how things work and play out and using a loose definition of knowledge. And so when in the open theism debate, you'll see a huge conflation of standard usage, uh, colloquial ways that we use the word knowledge. You'll see conflation with that with the philosophical definition of knowledge, which demands that there's a proposition behind the knowledge and the proposition is assigned a truth value. That's just not how we use the, the term knowledge generally. Uh, just like uh, uh, what Abraham, he says, I know that if I take my wife to Egypt, they're going to see me and they're going to say, oh, she's a beautiful woman and and she's with you and they're going to kill me and they're going to take you. Yeah, his knowledge was not like based on a proposition that actually exists. His knowledge was based on his knowledge of human characters char and the likelihood of certain actions taking place. He's using a colloquial uh, definition of knowledge when he's saying that that's what he knows. And so it, it's a very big mistake to start reading philosophical definitions uh, into the Bible where it's it's not obvious that the Bible is using those philosophical definitions or even talking about metaphysics and just assuming it's talking about metaphysics and then assume it's talking about your metaphysics and no one else's and then claim that your theology is correct because this, this is how these things work. So I would take issue with this. Not all knowledge is based on a uh, true fundamental proposition behind that knowledge. My knowledge of my girls wanting candy, if I were to offer them candy, is not based on a true proposition underlying that fact. It's just based on the normal definition of knowledge. And so, yeah, I do know the future. I do know how my girls are going to act if I behave in a certain way. And this is knowledge. Normal people will call this knowledge. Even people who I've been arguing about, about Calvinism, Arminianism, exhaustive foreknowledge, they'll slip up in the in the midst of a conversation and start uh, interchanging human knowledge of the future. And they'll, they'll use this language without even realizing they're using this language. And they'll say, oh, humans know this and this and this about the future. And say, yeah, yep. That's what I believe as well. God knows the future. We know the future. And it's, it's not because there's some underlining propositional truth values or anything in the future. It's just because that's how we use the word knowledge. We have good expectations that are justified, and the knowledge is uh, confirmed ex post facto. But again, what about the times in the Bible where God is taken by surprise, God has failed expectations, and uh, God changes what he thought was going to happen? So those are the critical data points if we're talking about if this type of knowledge is actually being described in the future that Brother Mike would have us believe must be knowledge must be the definition of knowledge for it to be knowledge. Knowledge of a proposition, unless that proposition is true. If you think you know today is Monday, when actually today is Sunday, then your proposition is mistaken. You may think you know, but you are wrong. Therefore, you do not have true knowledge of the proposition. So when we say God knows all propositions, we think and know that God has perfect knowledge of all that is and all that can be. Okay? 
Let me move on. If the body of true propositions known by an omniscient being includes all true propositions about what human beings will do in the future, a serious consequence from for human freedom seems to arise. So let me just break this down. So here's the here's the dilemma. And they call this the problem of free will. Y'all flow with me tonight. But but I want to break this down technically as well as I want to make this understandable. So they call this the problem of free will. If God knows everything, even the things that are to come, how is it do we have? So let me make a prediction about the future. He is going to conflate different types of knowledge. He's going to conflate the knowledge that I just described about my girls. And he's going to conflate that with his definition of knowledge in which knowledge must be must be assigned to a true proposition. So that's just my prediction. We will see if my prediction comes about. Free will. If God knew yesterday that I was going to wear this blue shirt today, isn't it determined for me to wear the blue shirt? <laughs> see, this is the dilemma they call a free will. Because if God knows that I'm going to wear the blue shirt, then I have to wear the blue shirt because God's knowledge cannot be wrong. So even worse than that, can God thwart what God knows will happen? Again, in, in classical omniscience, God is as subject to fate as everyone else. What God knows, God himself cannot undo. And what's their re rejoinder to that? How, how do they respond? They say, why would God want to do something else? Well, I'm just saying he can't. Even if he wanted to, uh, he couldn't do that. If God knows the propositional truth value of the future, God himself is not powerful enough to thwart that propositional truth value. God, God is a slave of fate as much as everyone else in the world. The open theist will contend that if God knows that I'm going to wear the blue shirt, then it must be determined that I will wear the blue shirt. Therefore, in order to get around this, the open theist would say, well, God must not have knowledge of the choice that I'm going to wear the blue shirt because I haven't chosen to wear the blue shirt yet. No, I would say God knows what color shirt I'm going to wear tomorrow because it's Really not that hard. Anyone who's familiar with my podcast probably has knowledge of what color shirt I will wear tomorrow. I, it's not hard to have knowledge of what people, what shirt, color shirt they're going to wear, but what type of knowledge is it? Is it this fatalistic knowledge? It's not this fatalistic knowledge. It's the normal colloquial definition and usage of the word knowledge. I know what my girls are going to do if I offer them candy. It's not that hard. God knows the future. I know the future. So God can't know it. So in that way, they want to protect our human free will. This is what the open theist is trying to do. It's an overreaction. <laughs> yeah, I remember all my podcasts about that are so concerned about protecting human free will. I, I, I've been podcasting for quite a while. I don't recall a single podcast in which, which I actually defend free will, like, trying to preserve free will i don't i don't know uh it's this hallucination about what the open theist value set is maybe some open theist somewhere but uh you'd have to introduce me and i'll have to say hi to those guys action to our reform brothers 
who do believe that all things are determined, right? Because our reformed brothers, and again, I love, you know, this is a secondary issue. We're not banging against anybody. I love my reformed brothers. I just added someone to the chat who put their name as God is open and they're currently muted. And so I, I'm not sure who this is. If this is a covert spy, we'll, we'll find out. It's Leron. It's Leron. What's going on? Peace, Chris. How's it going? It's going all right, man. Just listening and watching you. Keep going, man. I'm just listening. listening Fantastic. We'll say that, yes, if you could, you have to wear the blue shirt because God determined it. Now, some of them will vary. The compatibilists will say it's soft determinism. And the hard determinists will say, you know, you had to wear it, you know. The soft determinist will say, yeah, but you still chose to wear it because you wanted to wear it. <laughs> but yet God determined it. And so the open theists, they say, well, no, we don't believe all things have been determined by God. So, so here's here's the actual problem that, that, that's happening. So before I existed, the truth proposition of what I was going to do was already determined before I ever made that propositional choice. And so whatever is causing me to wear my black shirt tomorrow, it, whatever it is, it's not me. It's not free will. Uh, for free will to actually function and work, you should be able to take the exact same individual in the exact same circumstance in, and uh, replicate it multiple times and have different outcomes. It should function like randomness. And uh, so for to have a, a set truth value before any deciding factor was made in me means I am not the determiner of that action. That's in addition to our previous problems that we've already talked about. God himself cannot thwart what he himself knows. There, there's, there's several, several problems that come with adopting this type of philosophy. And guess what? Open theism solves these. Open theism is not about these problems. Um, maybe some people are like, oh, we need to preserve free will and, and figure out how free will works with God's knowledge, something like that. Um, no, that's just a happy side effect, though, of affirming the biblical God, who's a person who reacts, who interacts, who who takes advice from outside himself, who changes based on circumstances, and he's receptive to his creation. He created, in open theism, I pointed out uh, previously, in open theism, God creates for relationship. God creates for his own experience. God doesn't have experiences in classical omniscience. He doesn't gain knowledge. He doesn't gain anything from interaction. He doesn't uh, like change. And so in only in open theism does God have experiences. And that's actually the story of the Bible. Creation is for God's experience. God creates and he looks and then he evaluates and he says, oh, this is pretty good. And then he creates again. And then he looks at it and he's like, yeah, this is pretty good. And he creates Adam. He's like, wow, this guy's pretty good too. Let's, let's call the animals to Adam. This is this is a free creative creature. Let's let's see what Adam calls these animals. It's it's a very uh, what's a good term for it? He's he has high hopes. Uh, he has uh, high expectations. He's 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 at at a at a high point in his creation, full of love, joy, interaction, um, watching the world with with the sense of curiosity and watching what happens with this creation. God creates for the experience. God creates for relationships. God 
is walking in the garden. This seems like a normal activity with him. Uh, he, he tries to find Adam, which seems like a normal activity that he often interacts with Adam. And then Adam is gone. And he says, where are you, Adam? Why, why are you hiding from me? This is, this is an experience. He experiences his creation. God creates for experiences. In classical omniscience, God does not have experiences. And that's that's one of the pitfalls of adopting this, this Platonistic philosophy is that God no longer is a person. God himself cannot thwart what he knows will happen. God is not personal. God is just a facet of the system. He's just a cog in the will, playing his part for a faded eternity. Oh, in order for all things not to be determined by God, then God must not know our human choices that have not been made. Again, it is an overreaction to determinism. Right? Notice the next bullet. It is impossible for any omniscient being to hold even one false belief. In other words, what God knows cannot be wrong. This is really why he takes exception to the times in the Bible where I say, hey, God said this will happen, and then this did not happen. And then in Jeremiah, it says, I will not do what I thought to do. And so they they really don't want that language to mean what it says on the face value. They want it to be something else because if that meant what the text says that it meant, that God didn't do what he said he was going to do, God changed his mind, God had failed expectations, that God thought he was going to do something and didn't do it. If that language means what it says, this undermines their philosophical definition of omniscience. So they can't have it. They need some sort of mechanism to save, to salvage their philosophy. And so ignoring the text, uh, redefining the text, denying denying the straightforward, it's, it's okay to say that maybe a text is idiomatic or has an alternative meaning. But to just go out and say, oh, you're wrong when you read, it says God repented. They'll say, oh, you, you're wrong for thinking God repented. That's that's probably not the best thing to do. That That's a very, that very high desperation. If you wanted to say, you can't believe what the text actually says. Why? Based on philosophy. You should at least say, yeah, that is a possible reading, but I think there might be better readings if you look at context or you look at this fact or this fact or this fact. Just outright denying the face value reading, though is probably not a good strategy. And that's probably why open theism gets gets quite a few converts because they see people just outright denying text and ignoring what the text says in favor of the philosophy. And people who've grown up to prioritize the words of the Bible, you know, they're gonna come out and say, I, I can see what's happening here and uh, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for classical theism. Open theism seems to be the only one who cares about biblical priority. So if God knows I'm going to wear this blue shirt today, tomorrow or, or today, I couldn't have got up and put on the red shirt. And God say, oh, man, I thought I thought he was going to wear the blue shirt. And so God can't be wrong. Right. I want you to catch it. God can't be wrong. What's going on? Kevin G in the house. Bless you. I appreciate you, my brother. So, so they say God can. Yeah, the interesting thing is uh, Brother Mike was on Bree and TV with me, but we talked about none of this stuff. And so this this looks like it's a PowerPoint presentation that he had built before this time. And so it, it might not be a direct response to our conversation, but it's interesting how much he's focusing on this 
with how little this was in our actual conversation. Cannot be wrong. And so if God cannot, cannot be wrong, then I'm determined in some way to wear the blue shirt. Because God cannot be wrong. So my open theist friends will say, well, no, no. If that's the case, then we're merely robots. Everything you do has been determined by God because God knows all propositions. And if and if God knows it, yeah, then you must do it. So in that way, you have been determined. Let me give you another example here. For example, since God foreknows what Bob will do tomorrow at eight o'clock. It appears that Bob must do what God knows he will do. Holy buckets. Didn't we already if read that's this? that's the case, in what, in what sense can Bob's actions be free? Y'all see that? If God knows that at 8 o'clock, Bob will uh, choose to take a shower, right? And God knows it. He foreknows it. And God's foreknowledge can't be wrong. How then can Bob make a different choice? That's that's what the open theists are trying to resolve in their uh, theology. Remember, in that he cannot do other than what God knows he will do, because God's knowledge of proportions cannot be wrong. Yeah. So Drew McLeod writes, uh, God also knows all might propositions, which falsifies classical omniscience. So any type of um, knowledge gain in God where God's knowledge changes or conditionals turn to actualities, any type of transition like that would falsify classical omniscience because in that sense, his knowledge is changing. If, if God's knowledge changes, that gives potentiality, introduces potentiality into the Godhead, that violates simplicity, pure actuality, it violates immutability. God is not God if God's knowledge changes like that. So you'll hear people like William Lane Craig describe this type of temporal of knowledge. So in William Lane Craig's mind, God is temporal. He's not atemporal. And so God knows the tensed propositions like uh, Chris was five years old. Chris will be uh, 40 years old. Uh, Chris is 37 years old. And uh, so he knows, uh, but it's, it's not like a real tense change within God's propositional knowledge because it's the propositions aren't really linked to time like that. It's it's uh, in 2021. Chris is turning 38, something like that, or and uh, whatever the math. But uh, so it his his knowledge doesn't change really, but his knowledge is tensed. But it's not actual change in the in the knowledge that God has in the William Lane Craig model. The traditional outside of time models can't have propositions that change in any sense. They want to deny that because a change in the type and content of God's knowledge would violate those classical definitions. I, I do not know if Elder Mike here, if he is that savvy to really have internalized on a fundamental level, the classical meaning of omniscience. And so you, you find him defending a, not a classical view of omniscience, even though he calls it the classical view. We could call it maybe a weak classical view, which it's like a, a layman's perspective of what actually is entailed by the word omniscience. But it's not, it's not what's actually entailed by omniscience. Again, uh, classical omniscience is non-discursive. It's eternal. It's in ungenerated, it's innate, it's uh, unfalsifiable, it's exhaustive. These type of properties, which do not introduce change 
or division or parts or contingency or any potentiality into the Godhead, this type of omniscience needs to fit this, this model of God of pure simplicity. Again, simplicity is, is the major Platonistic concept in, in comparability, um, ineffability. These types of propositions were introduced into the church through people like Augustine. And then they had to formulate all these other, other attributes around that. They had to figure out how omnipotence would fit into this model, how omniscience would fit into this model, how omnipresence would fit into this model. Whereas Josephus, if you're reading Josephus, he was not one of these Platonistic philosophers. He might've had some exposure to Platonism, but in his model, God's uh, omnipresence was God's like everywhere on earth. But if you're reading the people who are actually Platonists, their omniscience or their omnipresence is God is nowhere on earth and above this concept of space time. And so in that way, he's omnipresent, but he's not actually, you can't actually have him in a location on earth because that would in fact introduce parts and contingency to the Godhead. And so you find people who don't understand the classical attributes of God defending uh, this lesser view, and then thinking that they're defending the classical view, it's it's kind of this it's kind of this odd odd position open theists are in. You have to convert people to classical theism before you convert them to open theism. You have to explain to them what their actual beliefs actually are and why their beliefs actually exist for their model in order for them to understand what it is the classical position entails. And the funniest thing to do is taking people like uh, Calvinists who claim that God has emotions and you say, oh, you're an open theist. If you believe that God changes in response to us, this is my conversation with one Calvinist lady, then you're an open theist. Congratulations. Welcome wel welcome to the party. You're an open theist. And she's like, I'm not an open theist. I've said, you, you think that God receives from outside himself. You're an open theist. That makes you an open theist. And she wasn't too happy about that. So that's always pretty funny. All right. God's knowledge cannot be wrong. So the overreaction of my open theist is to say, well, God simply does not have knowledge of future choices. In that way, our free will is protected. Now, the open theist will say, well, God knows all of the potential choices that you will make. So in that way, they're trying to maintain God's sovereignty, you know, they're trying to say, well, that, you know, some will even say this is even greater than God knowing exactly what you will do. Because not only uh, does he know all the potential actions. So when you choose one of those actions, God knew that that was one of the options you could have chosen. But although I agree with my open theist brothers that God certainly knows what I could have chosen we go a step further. God also knows what you're going to choose. Well, how could you have chosen? This is the actually funny thing. Uh, how could you have chosen something else other than what God unfalsifiably knows you will choose? There, there's there's not a contingency. There's, there's not a world in which that could actually actualize, that someone could actually choose something other than what God infallibly knows what will happen. So in, in Molinism, in classical theism, words lose meaning. 
especially when you're dealing with this Molinistic concept where they said, oh, it could have been this. Oh, why why in your model do you think it could be this? Oh, no reason, because I could kind of imagine someone picking a different color shirt. I can imagine Bob not picking a blue shirt and instead picking a red shirt. So it doesn't matter that the proposition is fatalistic that Bob must wear that blue shirt. I think he could, could have wore that red shirt. What brings you to that conclusion? What in your model suggests that that is a could condition that could materialize, that could be a state of reality? What brings you to that conclusion? And, and they're at a loss. The, they, the, the word could doesn't have meaning. It's not something that could actually happen. If there's no possibility, what was my, my quote that I did? Is it was so funny. As I said, if there's no, uh, if if something doesn't have a probability, it's not a possibility. And then the guy responded, "Only open theists, only open theists believe that. If something does not have a probability of happening, it's not a possibility. That's a fact. That that's what these words mean. That's what could means for something that." To, for something to have a could conditional, this could happen. There needs to be some sort of path for that to happen. It, it needs to be a potential path that could actually happen. Words have no meaning. Words have no meaning in classical Arminianism. Right. And I'm going to prove that right here in the text. God also knows what you're going to choose. All right, let's move on in the presentation. If God foreknows what Bob will do in the future, can Bob actually do anything yeah, other he? than what God knows he will do? Y'all see the dilemma? So either we're determined to do what God foreknows or either God doesn't know. The open theist would say that it's either one or the other. And the open theist will accuse those of us that are neither reformed nor open theists of being inconsistent in our theology. How do we get around this? Right. It seems highly unlikely that Bob will do anything different from what God knew he's going to do. Highly unlikely. It's unfalsifiable knowledge. This is 100 percent will happen or else God did not have this type of knowledge. This is knowledge that existed before Bob existed. God must or Bob must wear the shirt that God knows Bob will wear. And there's there's no other path that's available in this timeline. There's no coulds. Something else that uh, other than what does happen could not happen. Not in this model. It's just the definition of the words. Do. Yeah. Should we Google it? I, uh, definition of could. Uh, this is <laughs> definition of could. Um, I think I did this before. Used to indicate possibility. This is the, the definition from dictionary.com. Used to indicate possibility. Okay, what what is the possibility of Bob picking a different shirt? Do we do we got percentages on that? Do we got we got odds? <laughs> uh, we got odds that he's going to pick a different shirt than God unfalsifiably knows he will. Uh, so again, word, words have no meaning. Words have no meaning. If Bob actually had the power to do other than what God knows, that means God would have been mistaken. And so, again, the open theist is trying to protect God, in, the, in if you understand, in the sense of the term, by saying either God can be mistaken to do other than what God knows. Uh-oh. Well, now we're getting echo. Well, welcome to the podcast, Drew McLeod. Are you hearing me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's good to be here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. A lot of clear. So what do you think so far? Do words have meaning? <laughs> 
sorry this is really bad echo are you getting are you still getting this echo no well yeah it's fine now you were just uh, playing the youtube video and so it's kind of feeding back in from the actual presentation but now it's gone so you carry on and i'm gonna sort and i'm gonna sort this out i'm getting major echo here fantastic so. i'm gonna hit play mistaken or we don't have free will well of course the open theist will say we have free will so god must not know the choice you're going to make, he simply knows the possibilities that you will make or can make for that matter. Hope y'all follow him. All right. Bless you, Freddie Mills. So because, listen, if, if I'm able to choose something different, God would have then had a false belief, in which case God's foreknowledge would, ha would have actually been for ignorance. Right. It will be not for knowledge, but for ignorance. God thought I was going to wear the blue shirt. So one thing I find very funny is we're talking about all these things in the abstract where there's actually biblical examples of God not knowing things in the future, being surprised, having his expectations failed in the Bible. And so it's it's not like and we're, we're dealing with this in the abstract as if there's not biblical evidence that comes to bear against the claims that they are making. And are they going to be addressed? I, I assume that they're not going to be addressed. That's my prediction for his PowerPoint presentation that he won't actually address those instances of uh, God, God's failed expectations in the Bible. And you've, uh, you pointed this out on a lot of your broadcasts before, but um, the problem I think that a lot of people have with this is that there's a, you know, you said it in this way. I think that, um, we shouldn't be surprised when God does know the future. <laughs> we should be surprised when it appears that he doesn't and he has subverted expectations and stuff like that. And those are data points that cannot be explained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, those are the things that should be, uh, tackled, but yeah. So one very underrated article, I didn't write the article, and so I can't take credit, but someone was pointing out the the accuracy of prophecy. Okay, so hey, hey, the, a brand new, brand new example I thought up uh, on the fly. Um, I have a hundred-sided dice. I can predict every roll with 100% accuracy. Do you believe me? Uh no <laughs> well yeah well, it, it's true i can so grab a dice yeah. uh, grab a random number generator and get ready so i predict that the the dice will roll between one and a hundred go ahead and roll the dice we'll see if it comes comes true if i knew the future or not right right and so yeah uh, w one thing about prophecy is you have to look at the detailedness of prophecy the accuracy of prophecy so if if, if there's a prophecy of the date jesus is born in the article, it talks about, well, if it's talking about the very hour and minute, that's a different prophecy than just giving a loose location. Giving a, a specific day is different than giving a year or a decade. And so the type of prophecy that we see in the Bible it usually is generally pretty loose. And so all sorts of details uh, happen, can happen, have the potentiality to happen, and still have the prophecy come about because the prophecy's not filled with those that detailed level uh, data to force it to come about in a way that you'd expect in a fatalistic system. And so if I'm predicting that dice roll, I could predict it every time by saying it's going to be between 1 and 100. I'll be right every single time, 
that doesn't mean I'm like some scholar of the future. If if I if I predicted it down to the exact the exact dice roll every time, that would be a different type of data for my knowledge. You might you might then begin to suspect something like maybe the dice dice is rigged, or maybe you might come to the conclusion that I have some sort of psychic knowledge of the future, something. But it's it's unremarkable if my predictions of the future are in such a loose way that all sorts of data points can bring about the same results. And so God's prophecies, God's prophecy to bring about a nation from uh, Abraham and then finding various ways to do that throughout the Bible. Oh, maybe he could kill all of Israel except for Moses and then raise a new children. He could still fulfill this prophecy because the prophecy is at such a high level that all sorts of various details, contingent details, uh, can can be uh, either thwarted or brought about to make this this over overhead this higher level prophecy come true. That it it really doesn't. He doesn't have to know all the little details. He just has to have the power to, in some way, affect the the minor details to add up to that overall goal. Hmm. Yeah, God can do things. <laughs> God can do things. <laughs> and it and it reminds me of the debate that we had with those two Calvinist guys that you reviewed. Uh, and obviously my co-host, Eric, he has a different view from me on this. And so, I, I mean, I personally think that maybe he's just, you know, I think that every normie Christian <laughs> has a lot of open theistic beliefs, whether they would admit it or not. I know that I had for a time. And like you said earlier, not everybody's dialed into this classical om omniscient stuff and all of, all of what this really entails. But so they would say things like, you know, oh, well, maybe the cross could fail. Or you think about prophecies like about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Like, is it really that hard to get Jesus to be born in Bethlehem? Like, is that, <laughs> is that something that just seems like, oh, if there's one rogue molecule, then everything's going to, you know, they, uh, R.C. Sproul is known for that. And I think that that rhetoric, rhetoric was uh, used in the debate at some point about how if something was off, oh, there's so many different generations, you know, that would come. And if there's just one of these things off and it could all, it's like, that just strikes me like, please say that louder. So we can yeah. all know how weak you think God is. <laughs> so what one tongue-in-cheek way to respond to it, uh, you could say, um, maybe could God raise another Mary from the rocks if if he needed to? It's like, could could that happen? Could, yeah, could he yeah, perhaps right. raise another Mary in Bethlehem if needed? <laughs> like it sounds absurd, but as soon as you start using a little bit of your, and maybe this sounds kind of like crazy to people, but just a little bit of your imagination, like... There, God has options. Like, <laughs> so yeah. God can, in fact, it's like uh, that. I need to make. I need to pull out like every single debate and pull out the highlights, which I think are like the best parts. And the Gene Cook Bob Enyart debate was fantastic, in which <laughs> Bob Enyart has to explain to Gene Cook that yeah, God can, in fact, get a rooster to crow three times. The rooster crowing is not is not the yeah. exciting part of that prophecy. Yeah. That's we do believe I like, God can I, do some things. I like Brother Brian Wagner's uh, explanation of that, where he says, and then God pinched the rooster. <laughs> uh, yeah. I like pointing out if Peter would have taken it as a warning and repented and affirmed Jesus, no, this wouldn't be their proof text. They would be they would be championing him as, as someone who who took the warning to heart and repented mm. and the prophecy as conditional. Mm -hmm. 
But only the only reason it's used as a proof text is because, you know, now it's convenient because it's something that Jesus said that did come about. And uh, and so that they, they could point to that and say, this is proof positive. If this failed, then Jesus would be God. I don't believe you. I don't believe yeah. you would have you would you would actually be arguing that point if right. in fact this had failed. You, you treat it like Nineveh. I'll let you get back to the broadcast here, but I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that that's had my thinking stimulated on this particular point because I think you were you were responding to Tim, Tim Stratton and you were saying if Judas had turned and this were a warning or whatever, then they would treat it in the exact same way that they treat Jonah, where he says, you know, uh, in three days or whatever it is, the city will be overthrown. So then it becomes an unfalsifiable data point <laughs> like that you you really would have to look at the context of each thing and what's happening and consider that when jonah does say and this will be overthrown that it must have been implicit in that that there were conditional elements and warnings and stuff like that so it is just interesting that the whole proof text endeavor with this sort of stuff isn't as uh straightforward i think as people would like to make it seem so yeah, people yeah. have this amazing ability to only look for data points that further what they already believe without considering and to putting themselves in the shoes of critics or trying to apply consistent standards across the text. And so that's one thing we need to be very careful of. So if someone brings a criticism to us, we actually have to consider that criticism and and what they're trying to say. So uh, if if there's, there's uh, the Witch of Endor, and Samuel and saying Saul's going to be dying in a in a day or so on the battlefield. We ha actually have to consider. Okay, how how is this knowledge known? If in fact it's not knowledge of the future in the classical sense, and say what are the possibilities? What are the options? Is there option and an option? Is this talking about fatalism? And we just have to have to run the gamut of solutions and see what the text itself is 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 the best fit and. Uh, you know, so critical thinking needs to be applied to our own side as well. And we can't be doing this thing where um, proof text trumping is pretty famous, where you just, someone says something, oh, your proof text is this. Well, my proof text says this. Let's go look at my proof text. Uh, each proof text, yeah, even, even if it's not, even if, even if you have rhetorical reasons for switching to another proof text and focusing the debate elsewhere, your own internal theology should be able to deal with the, their own proof texts within its own context, with its, within its own setting, if you want to remain internally consistent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah there, are, there are rhetorical reasons to say things in debates, and I, I won't deny that. And so sometimes... I have to think when people are debating, it, it, is what they're saying a debate strategy or is it what they actually believe? Bob Enyart starts out his Samuel Lamerson debate saying, whatever side describes God in the most glorious way, that side's right. It's like, is that a rhetorical device to change Calvinist, Calvinistic language against themselves? Or does he actually believe that the moralistic fallacy is true when it comes to God? And so that's an open question. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I kind of pushed uh, Bob Ennard over a little bit on on the biblical omniscience chart that I, I have on the webpage, because sometimes he'll do those types of moralistic things, make those moralistic arguments. But anyways, I'll go ahead and hit play and we'll listen to the problem of free will. But in actuality, I wore the red shirt. 
And therefore, God's foreknowledge would not be correct. It would be that God was ignorant of the choice that I was going to make. But listen, church, the Orthodox Christian belief does not believe in for ignorance. We believe in foreknowledge and we believe God's foreknowledge is perfect. Right. Notice what the slide goes on to say. This is impossible. If God has true foreknowledge of what human beings will do in the future, it would appear these actions are determined. It would appear these actions are determined. And so this is why my reform. So uh, I, I already Googled the word definition with another word. So definition of determined. Let's, let's, let's pull that up. It says, having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. All right. Um, let's let's kind of jump in there and look at other definitions of determined. He's he has to be really careful here, and this is something that I think Eric Hernandez pointed out to me, and he he differs on divine omniscience with us, obviously. But uh, you can't equivocate on the word determine. Determine can also just mean to choose. But when we say determine in this context, usually we're talking about causal determination, um, which is a tricky subject, but um, but yeah, carry on. Did you find any other definitions? Uh, I'm not finding I'm not finding this philosophical. So and, I'll just Google determinism in philosophy. It's a theory or doctrine that acts of the will, uh, occurrences in nature, or social or psychological ph phenomena are casually determined by preceding events or natural laws, mm. or a belief in predestination, the quality or state of being determined. And so with, with that definition, I would say that his views meet that definition. And so uh, he's, he's, he hasn't demonstrated that free will is possible. And a proof for free will would be being able to um, replicate in the same scenario, the same individual that with the same past history and having them being able to choose other, mm -hmm. right? And that would be a good test for free will. You, you saw my you saw my question that I, I kind of screened through you for the Molinists on that point was that basically if given the exact same past history, if this person chose differently or whatever, would that be a different world? Or is he like actually able to choose? And a number of people acknowledge that that would be a different world if he chose differently, like that God would have actualized a different world. And in my mind, I, I just don't... I just don't think like this in my mind. If that's a different world, that's a different you. <laughs> like I don't, you know, when they talk about actualizing, well, if you were in the situation you would have in a different world, it's like, but that's, a, that's like a different version of me. We're talking about like a, like a multiverse, like, yeah, you, <laughs> so so not, you, you notice that they always change the underlying conditions they say oh you would have chosen this in this circumstance they change the circumstances but if free will actually existed um someone should have the option to choose something entirely different with the exact same facts in existence and and so if if the molinist wants to affirm that true free will exists and someone with the exact same past history every single molecule in the universe being in the exact same position can actually have a choice between two options and it could go either way. They're going to have to explain how God's knowledge has eternally aligned with the choice that that individual makes. And that, and that's what I was trying to press toward. Uh, 
and kind of just gave up a little bit, I think, but was just like, so what is the difference? How, what is it that God knows about this world? You know, how is it that he's choosing to actualize this particular world? Because it's not, there's nothing different all the way up to it. So there's some kind of uh, determination in the sense of a choice that God makes that maybe doesn't have a causal relationship, but is but is bringing the you into existence that will choose this way. And to me, that's just like, you're just a determinist, determinist with extra steps. And I'm not trying to be pejorative and saying yeah, that. that that's exactly moments, what it is, though. You know, brothers and sisters, but like. But, if God controls know, circumstances, he can know with with complete certainty of what actions every single creature is going to take. This is this is determinism. So again, free will would would necessitate that someone in the exact same circumstance could choose a different thing than what they choose. That would be and what one, was. And one thing that on his point <laughs> where I face palmed here just a few moments ago is that uh is that when start people start bringing up orthodox Christianity and stuff like that, I'm just like Okay, but like, according to whom? Like, according to who? Like, is Orthodox Christianity? And then he says, uh, you know, we don't. <laughs> it's a good rhetorical device. We don't believe in for ignorance. We believe in foreknowledge. But the problem, that, and the question that I would like to ask, Brother Mike, is if he affirms a timeless view of God, which I would say most Christians do, he doesn't believe in foreknowledge. He just believes in knowledge. So it's actually as far as I can tell, and, you know, the Molinists uh, hold to an A theory of time as well, but, you know, there's some complications there and stuff, but like the open theists, the people who affirm dynamic omniscience, you know, changing God's knowledge are the only ones that can affirm for knowledge <laughs> because it's right. actually sequentially before something. It, the people have to believe that God is in time to actually have for knowledge. So William Lane Craig does believe that God is temporal, so he would probably fit someone who believes that God has foreknowledge. Hmm. But so I, th I think there are models that exist like that. But the timeless view of God, God in the technical sense does not have foreknowledge. I don't know what Elder Mike does. I, I have a feeling that when I interacted with him, he believes God is in time. But uh, I'm not I'm not sure about that. But we'll I'll hit play. Warm brothers would say, hey, man. This is true. How can you do anything outside of God's foreknowledge? It has to be determined. And many of them are compatibilists. And they'll say, well, God uses means in order to drive you through to what God has determined. And this uh, this lesson isn't about the reform position. I think I'll come back at a later time and explain the other extreme. I think that the open theists and my reform brothers are at two extreme ends of the spectrum, right? The next bullet says, if those actions are not determined and humans have the power to do something or not, then it seems to follow that God then would lack omniscience. If I could actually make a free choice, if I can make a free choice, then God, in some sense, cannot foreknow it. Because if he foreknows it, according to open theists, then my decision isn't actually free. I am actually locked in to do that which God foreknows I will do. 
Right. So Biblical Rumble Room makes a good point. For ignorance is hyperbole and unreasonable. The wisest being in existence, of course, has the strongest institute in, intuition, and that counts for something. If if you go to Google and you type in the worst argument in the world, it'll <laughs> it'll actually be come up that it's the non-central fallacy. The non-central fallacy is when someone wants to try to use a super technical definition like ignorance. So Calvinists, they really want to get open theists uh, with a quote saying that God is ignorant because rhetorically this works uh, great for their audience. Their audience is like, ha ha ha, ah, ha ha, we win. You just said God's ignorant. Ha ha ha. Uh, but no one, no one would describe that. Let's take God's knowledge that God does have an open theism. And let's say that your, your, your buddy Bob had that type of knowledge. Uh, no one would call him ignorant. Everyone would call him uh, like a hyper intelligent, uh, the smartest man in the world. No one's going to call that man ignorant. Maybe some like random people on like Twitter who just call everyone ignorant. They might call him ignorant, but that's not what we understand from the word ignorant. Even though it might meet the technical definition, it's not. It's not the colloquial definition. It's not, it's not the one that's used in society when talking about what ignorance is, what ignorant people are. It's them wanting to use word games for rhetorical effect. They want to win debates rather than deal with the truth of propositions. And they, they do this by trying to control the language in the debate. So try not to, if you're ever interacting with these people, they're, they're not honest. And so don't give them the soundbite that they're looking for. Always, if they're trying to do the non-central fallacy, walk them through how it is a fallacy and it is in fact the worst argument in the world because then they don't have their sound bite and then they are exposed and then they look like an idiot. And so it, you, you need to understand what their goals are with their questioning and where what you can do to subvert their expectations, to take over the conversation and lead it in a direction that they were not anticipating and where they're not the winners in that discussion. Yeah, the it's it's the sad part about it is that it's very effective. <laughs> it's a very effective rhetorical strategy. Uh, he who shall not be named uses it often. <laughs> who we who we responded to this, you know, fallacious uh, reasoning and stuff to persuade audiences. And I think here here's a if if brother Mike ever gets around to watching this, uh, maybe will maybe won't. Here here's my question. I think all Christians. Uh, believe that God is ignorant <laughs> in some way, right? Okay, so does God know what it's like to be a baked potato? <laughs> no, he doesn't. Like, does God know what a married bachelor is? No, because he can't know a contradiction. So, so God is only knowing things that are true. And, it, it, you know, this was to the point of the might, you know, might propositions. And uh, brother... Uh, I'm blanking on his name. Was that Laron earlier? G consciousness in yeah. here that commented with the Jeremiah 26. Yes. Yeah. So, so brother Laron commented this, it may be, they will listen. So this is one thing that I struggle with uh, communicating clearly. And you said that this probably isn't the best proof for dynamic omniscience or open theism or anything, but like, but it may be, and it will be are ex are mutually exclusive. So if God knows and believes in his mind, this will happen. It cannot also be true in his mind that it may be this. So either God is misleading by saying it may be, or God knows maybes is true. And if a maybe is true, then the future is at least partially 
open and could go could go more than one way in a few different areas. And and that's actually what I hear from people that God purposely misleads people like uh, Moses on Mount Sinai saying, I'm going to destroy Israel. Get away from me. I'm just going to kill them all. And they'll say, oh, he was just saying that in order to get uh, Moses to perform this kind of perfunctual act and, and uh, praying for his people. And so it wasn't that God actually thought he was going to destroy Israel. It was, it was all this facade in order to kind of get people to act in a certain way in relation to God. It's like this, this, this like God just, just outright lies to everyone in order to manipulate them into actions. Is this, that God, seems now, so untenable to me. Like that's, that's so much less plausible <laughs> than God actually changing his plan according to what I mean even back when I affirmed kind of a traditional omniscience foreknowledge I was basically just like I don't know I mean I guess these things fit I don't know how they do I know God's not lying or misleading here you know I've had people tell me about that Jeremiah 26 passage with uh the perhaps or maybes that well God needed to say it in this way so that Jeremiah would think <laughs> that right. there's a possibility of it's like why but why would he do that like that's <laughs> and so, so real quick clarification on that the biblical principle is you don't bear false witness against your neighbor you don't like lie to your friends and family and so god does sometimes use deception in order to get people to act in certain ways such as uh first kings 22 in which he sends out these false reports that uh, Ahab is going to win in, in battle through all these prophets. And that wasn't true at all. He's trying to manipulate them into the action. But you don't do that against your friends, the people who you talk to face to face, who, <laughs> yeah. who, who have seen the face of God and have the heart of God. You don't do that to your friends. You do that as a, a tactic to trick enemies into actions. Like, uh, for example, with Gideon, giving them all a dream of bread, killing them and frightening them all. And and playing with their minds, doing doing all this uh, psychic manipulation, like uh, mental manipulation during the battles. And so open theists can affirm that God does use manipulation in circumstances, but you don't do it to your friends. You don't do it to your loved ones. Um, that, that seems to be like a violation of basic ethics that <laughs> like lying to your kids, you're like, I'm going to do this unless you do this. <laughs> and it's, and it's a bit of an insult to the intelligence of Moses and Jeremiah and stuff, and, and even to the reader, and as well as to the inspiration of Scripture. Like, God could have chosen the words that you're using to get down in His Word to communicate this truth to Moses and to whoever else, but for some reason, He decided to say it in the way that fits best with my worldview. But then you are saying, "Well, it's just an anthropomorphism. Really, what He meant is this," and it's like. Well, why didn't he just say that? <laughs> they, <laughs> he could have just said it that way. Modern day uh, philosophers and theologians know better than Moses about who God is and what his character is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Follow me, y'all. All right. So the open theist now has to make a choice. Do we protect our free will? And this is oh, what open theists That's what I want to do. do. That's all I do. do I try do we to protect, protect free our will? free will. Or do we develop a system that would place a restraint on the power and knowledge of God somehow without robbing him of his omniscience? What is exact, which is exactly what the open theist is trying to do. He's trying to protect God's uh, sovereignty. They don't want to rob him of his omniscience. 
But at the same time, they want to protect our free will. Right? If God this is what not I get know, told all the time, and I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not that's not why I like I was reading the scriptures and then cognitive dissonance started to happen, and I was like, I can't be consistent with my old view of omniscience and hold to these beliefs. Uh, something's got to give not because I wanted to protect free will. Like I've been, usually that's the line that Calvinists pull out on me. (laughs) And I'm just like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but this isn't born from a, oh, you wanted to protect free will so bad. You just worshiped your free will so much that you just gone in this heretical extreme direction. Like, (laughs) I don't know what to tell you, but just to say that that's not true, like hand on heart. That's not why I believe what I believe. Like I, I don't, I don't on. know their uh, uh, psychology credentials, but uh, it, does, <laughs> it, it almost it does feel like projection. Like they really care about like sovereignty. So sovereignty is like a word you're not going to find in the Bible, and that's what they champion above everything. And so like all their memes are like, oh, these these other people who are not Calvinists, they hate God's sovereignty. It's like it's not even a biblical. What are we talking about here? And so they're. Their uh, rallying, their their affiliation and affinity for this word, they think that there there seems to be this opposite camp, which I haven't ever experienced, that has the same type of fidelity to the opposite concept that they hold fidelity to, and so they can't imagine a world in which people don't care about their value sets. <laughs> people don't care. It's not like they come in and say, "Oh, free will is terrible," and everyone's like, "Oh no, someone's assaulting free will." Form the shield wall around the free will. <laughs> Light up. Future contingents. And contingents means the choices we make. If God cannot know future contingents, that is actions that flow from human free choice or human decisions. So I'll use the term contingents throughout this presentation. So whenever I say contingents, it means the human free choices or human free decisions. So if God can't know these future contingents, then the supposed threat to divine omniscience poses for human freedom disappears. So the open theists say we got the solution. God doesn't know future contingents. Because those decisions have not been that's, made. That's not what we and they say I mean, his he's still omniscient because well, I, I would think Greg Boyd kind of talks like this sometimes, but it, it's that might be who he's actually interacting with when he built this. He might have just pulled sure, up a bunch of Greg sure. Boyd articles and then just conflated that with all of open theism. And and I guess philosophically, you know, this wasn't initially compelling to me, but it is true that. Uh, contingents need to be settled in order to be known. So, in, in the philosophical definition of knowledge, not not colloquial definition of knowledge. Right, right. And so, if you're having a philosophical discussion, uh, people, you know, people who hold a traditional omniscience, they have to ask the question about who settled the future facts about you. It 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 wasn't you because you didn't exist. And let's grant for argument's sake that it wasn't God because you're a determinist. Then apparently it's just a fact of reality that all of your future free will decisions are already yeah. settled, which is fatalism. Yep. And this is this is a, this is a subjective, you know, to me or whatever. But back when I held this view, I was 
I was quite cognizant of like, well, God just knows what I will choose, but it's not as though he can really change that. <laughs> yeah. Like from the, especially from the timeless view where he's just seeing all of it as one completed reality. Where, and then I thought, but he does intervene and things do change. And it was just this constant battle, you know, back and forth and stuff. So, and even uh, worse, they, God can't even change his own actions. Right. Right. It, the, the timeless view is, is a much more significant challenge than people want to get it, give it credit for. Um, it's a, it, it becomes a real challenge when you start to try to get your head around it. So, especially when you consider that it has no biblical support. <laughs> <laughs> did like, you, did you see that Will Duffy debate about timelessness? And, no, uh, no. Oh, it was so funny. The guy, the guy, I don't know the guy's name, but he, he'd pull out these proof texts and then, uh, Will Duffy would say, well, it doesn't actually say that God's timeless in the proof text. And the guy would be like, yeah, but, uh, but it, uh, it fits my views that I just explained. He's like, uh, what's your problem? He's like, the problem is it doesn't actually state anything about God being timeless. This is a proof text for timelessness. It has nothing to do with timelessness. You just pulled right. it up and you right. talked about it and said it fits your view of timelessness. But the verse itself doesn't, it doesn't, it's not about timelessness. The two, the two things that collapsed my view of, or started to collapse my view of, of divine timelessness or whatever is that there are no biblical passages for it. So I just thought initially like, okay, actually there's no Bible passages for this. So, so there must be some way in which God knows the future, like as exhaustively settled or whatever. And then I was reading the, I have it on the shelf back here, the four views on divine foreknowledge book. And one of the, and one of the guys that was, you know, obviously speaking from a settled, I don't remember which perspective it was, but then Boyd responds and he goes, I'm thankful for the, for the frankness of such and such who acknowledges that there's no passage that teaches that God knows all of the future as exhaustively settled or whatever. And I started to go like, Oh, <laughs> so it's not, it's not that, it's not, there is no passage that teaches that God knows the future as exhaustively settled and only working out one way. The only question is when God makes a prophecy, how, how, what determines whether that thing comes to pass or not? And how does God bring things to pass? And then when I started thinking, well, I don't really understand how it works, but I just assume God can do things. I was like, all right, <laughs> problem solved. You yeah, know, he but. came to the conclusion, God can do things. Because <laughs> he knows all possibilities. He knows every aspect of what you could choose. He know I could have wore the red shirt, the blue shirt, the green shirt, the white shirt, the black shirt. So I was talking to this brother, Mike guy on the, the podcast the other day and i said yeah god does have some knowledge because <laughs> he's like how could god know this and this and this will happen i said yeah, god does have some knowledge and everyone in the comments were like what this is outrageous <laughs> god has some knowledge <laughs> oh, I, 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 did, I did this i said he, god has a little bit more knowledge than us at least just a little bit <laughs> and, oh that triggered them something yeah yeah ah, he knows every color shirt I have in my closet. So he knows that I could have chosen each one of those. So in that way, the open theist will say, well, yeah, he's still omniscient in that sense because he knows all potentials. He knows all contingents. He knows every potential choice I could have made. But he doesn't know exactly what choice I will make until after I make it. And listen, church, that's a problem. 
That's it is a problem to say that God does not know the choice I'm going to make until I make it. And I'm going to bring out some of the uh, uh, problems with that as we go. Right. They believe if God has perfect knowledge of the future, then human free will is non-existent. See that. And, and again, that's the same thing with uh, my reform brother. I've been accused by my reform Calvinist brothers of being open theists. Because they'll say, Mike, is our all things It's a rhetorical determined? device. I say, well, it depends on what you mean. No, I don't believe God has uh, strictly determined all things. I don't believe that. So the I next question. I wonder what it was that he said. Me is, well, Mike, you must be an open. Oh, uh, Very likely it was a rhetorical device. But I'd be interested in what claims he was making that caused them to want to accuse him of being an open theist. Thieves. Because <laughs> there are some things that you could say that would be like, like, uh, I mean, I love my co-host, Brother Eric. You know, he and I are, are, are good friends and stuff like that. We did an episode on prayer on the provisionist perspective, and I was interested. I didn't know whether or not he was going to agree with me, you know, on what prayer did and didn't do. But then he agreed with pretty much everything. And now we have that episode up there. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure how he you know, connects that in his mind, I probably would have struggled to once upon a time, but that would, that might be something that, um, somebody would be like, wait, you can't hold to this and hold to traditional omniscience. So, so, so the thing I found is, uh, I grew up in Calvinist churches. And so I, I've been subjected to hundreds, if not thousands of Calvinistic sermons. They sound like an open theist, unless they're talking, they're doing a, a systematic uh, theology sermon. When they go over the Bible like a normal person, they'll talk like an open theist. Uh, then they'll, they'll 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 switch gears once they start talking about the nature and character of God. It's just the funniest thing to watch. And so people could actually function quite well um, in a Calvinistic church, just going to a Calvinistic church that systematically goes over Bible verses and Bible chapters verse by verse. And 99% of the things you're exposed to is not going to be Calvinism. Um, so... That, that is actually pretty funny. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to Calvinistic sermons and you noticed that. It it does drive me crazy. There, there's a, um, there's like a, a, a practical kind of Bible side of their brains. And then there's a theological systematic side of their brains and they don't talk to one another. <laughs> so as soon as you start pressing on a particular issue in a, like a more of a one-to-one -one conversation, they start going into the systematic. And then you're like, you know, how does this fit over here? Like I was talking to a Calvinistic brother several weeks ago. It's been a few months ago, actually, now. And I, you know, asked him, so would you tell this such and such a person that God loves them and he died for them? He's like, yeah, I would. And I was like, how does that, how does that reconcile with what you believe according to this? And he's like, well, God loves them and he died for them in a, in a sense, in a certain way in that he died for the whole cosmos. And I was like, but you're, you're just being misleading. Like the Holy spirit in you wants you to tell that person that God loves them and died for them, but your theology doesn't permit that. Like, so yeah, they definitely have a, I mean, that that's a, it's a general sweeping thing to say they, you know, Calvinists, but um, it does, it does seem that way oftentimes. Yeah. <laughs> because they believe those are the only logical conclusions, but I'm going to show you in this presentation He's that that's simply us. not true. Right. Human free will is intact and God knows everything. And I'm going to show you that. 
They go on to say, if God doesn't know the future, then our free will is protected. Human beings can still exercise their free will. This is what is called open theism. What is so uh, some praises for Brother Mike? He's very articulate. He enunciates his words very well. And this is something, uh, it's a long format. It's like a two-hour video that he's doing live streaming. He does a very good job just in his presentation. This is something that people could just sit down and listen to. Uh, so Brother Mike has a lot of admirable charismatic traits that we should seek to emulate. And so I am, I am, I, I, I like to watch how, how people talk and their mannerisms and in which way they, they present information. And he's got uh, to pull you into it for sure. You're like, Oh yes. You know, what's going on? Tell me all about it. Like, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he, he has a lot of passion and his passion shows through and uh, just his voice inflections really emphasize the points that he's trying to make. And so we, we should, uh, I, we should give him props at least for that. It, it just his speaking style. What was uh, Kevin G is saying that he doesn't think that was Elder Mike's point. If you're going to if you're going to confront his point, do it. Don't joke around the issue. I don't know what what was his uh, point that you're saying there. Um, um, he might have been talking about when we we're talking about Elder Mike being accused of being open theist. I'm not sure what the context of that quote was. So that's why I didn't throw that up there. Uh, it mm. says if I don't think that was his point going to confront, I don't joke around the issue. I'm, and I think, you know, one thing, you know, brother Kevin, you have to understand about being on, you know, you joke around and you cut up and you have fun. Like, I don't mean any disrespect to brother Mike by this. It, it, it is sometimes it is a little bit exasperating when you feel like people aren't quite hitting on the point of contention, but, I don't think yeah. he's even talking to us, Kevin G. I think he's interacting okay, maybe, uh, with David he here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he yeah. says, I'm talking to the chat. Okay, okay uh, cool. mystery solved. Uh, Scooby Next. and the gang have, have solved the riddle. <laughs> uh, Is it that God does not know future contingencies or the future free choices of human beings? That's what they believe, y'all. All right? Let's keep moving. Let's keep moving, right? Here's some of the most popular open theist philosophers. You have Carl Pinnock. Carl Pinnock was one of the first. Uh, okay, uh, pop quiz. What books has David Bassinger written on open theism? And, no, I don't know either. And so I don't know how he's getting listed here. He has like an article or two or something and then like some interviews. And so that's an interesting name to include in this list. It's good. It looks like maybe he's going to bring forth some some quotes here. Hopefully he sticks to their biblical arguments uh, more so than the um, philosophical stuff. That was the thing that emerged as me is quite strong from the four views of divine foreknowledge book was Boyd seemed to me to be concerned with the biblical data and everybody else, as well as the Calvinists. Like I think he did a, you know, a good job from his own perspective, but the other two guys were engaged in a lot of, philosophy where I was like, you, you know, you're not really hitting the biblical points here, guys. Like, um, so there are strong biblical points out there. Uh, yeah. If, if I, if I was making this bullet list, I'd either switch David Bassinger for Bob Enyart or for Terrence Fretheim or even Walter Brueggemann, something like that. And, mm. uh, that, that way, if any of those individuals are put up there, then you get more of a biblical take or side on open theism. 
So that's my only criticism of this list Be because he's getting a philosophical cross section. True. Open theist philosophers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So even John Sanders, John, uh, the reason John Sanders didn't have Walter Brueggemann write for the openness of God book is because he didn't like the fact that uh, Walter Brueggemann didn't prioritize God's love uh, in in the text and reinterpret things in light of love. And and that came out on my interview with John Sanders when I was talking to him about the book. I don't know if it was uh, on the phone off air or if it was actually in the actual interview that I posted, but we did talk about that. So John Sanders, he's, he's a very biblical guy, but um, he does tend to use some philosophy as metrics. And so I would I would just hope that the list would include some of the more biblically sounded sides. Mm, mm. Proponents, and he's one of the most popular proponents of open theism, right? And you can look him up, right? He introduced some thoughts here that, that are very problematic. Richard Rice, John Sanders, David Bassinger, right? And here's one who who's one of the more popular uh, theologians of today, Gregory Boyd, is an open theist. And listen, Greg, Gregory Bory has some stuff out that I like. He really does. But he's open theist. I can't get with him on that. These authors believe that it is necessary to eliminate God's knowledge of future human actions in order to preserve the privilege for human free will. Apparently, New Zealand has weird Father Day's date. So, Drew McLeod. You know, this is... Con, con, this will be my comment on that, and then I got to run. But <laughs> my theory is that Father's Day is positioned in the different hemispheres for the season of the year where you can do barbecues and grill. So like September is that time of the year for us, whereas for you guys in the northern hemisphere, it's in July. So that's why that's my theory on why the dates are different. That does make sense. How are you going to get outside with the lockdown police uh, guarding your door? I can I can go outside in my in my own yard. I can do that. So oh, they allow you, know. you that? That they do allow that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Oh, okay. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Kevin, for that for the happy Father's Day wishes. Yeah, New Zealand is where I'm at. That's right. So it, yeah. it's a real country, apparently. I had to Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not actors down here. You know, I've heard that the uh, I think that's actually a straw man of the flat earth position now that I've looked into it a bit. But once upon a time, I thought that the flat earthers thought that we were actors, so um, we're not, we're real. So, <laughs> yeah, did you see the ice wall that surrounds the flat, flat earth? That it's in, and you can see it from my backyard. You just look out, and there's just this big does the big government keep down planes that fly near it? Definitely, every day you just see them getting shot down. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's good to see you, Chris. We'll see you. All around. right. Good to talk to you. Cool. This belief is not the biblical picture of God's knowledge. We got to eliminate God's knowledge of future human actions so we can protect our free will. And that's a problem. <laughs> All right. Here's a quote from Clark Pinnock. Right. Again, he's one of the foremost leaders of open theism. Uh, he does his best to make the limited God of his worldview look good. Now, watch what Clark Pinnock says, and let's see if you can find the problems in this statement here. Right. Watch this. If choices are real and freedom significant, future decisions cannot be exhaustively foreknown. I want you to catch that. If our choices are real and freedom significant, 
then future decisions cannot be exhaustively foreknown. This is because the future is not determining, but the future is shaped in part by human choices. The future is not fixed like the past, which can be known completely. So, of course, they'll, they'll agree that we can know what has taken place, or, or pardon me, God can know what has taken place, but God cannot know what hasn't taken place yet. Let me continue with his quote. The future does not yet exist and therefore cannot be infallibly anticipated even by God. Did y'all see? Did y'all hear that? Because the future does not exist, it therefore cannot be infallibly anticipated even by God. And so the note that this is a good point of disagreement that I'm glad he points out because this really gets to the issue. He believes that the future is infallibly determined. And he also believes that we could have chosen otherwise. You see the problem there? Uh, those two things. In, in what sense, in which timeline could we have picked differently? How could we? What was the possibility that God's infallible knowledge did not come about? Again, his, his system is internally inconsistent. And I think Clark Pinnock here is exactly right about this, that there's nothing in the future that's uh, infallibly determined. God reserves the right within the Bible. We see data points. God changes his mind based on unfolding actions that he didn't anticipate. He takes a conditional pro or he takes a unilateral promise to Eli's sons, Eli's house, and he changes it to a conditional promise because Eli's house failed God. They acted differently than he expected. He had failed expectations. This, brothers and sisters, is an attack on omniscience. And again, many of them would accuse us of being uh, Western in our thought and taking on Greek thought. But I, we, again, I've shown you who, who's the one really have the Greek thought. Uh, not, not just Greek, uh, Greek Aryan thought. So that's actually pretty funny. Uh, a lot of times, uh, Brother Mike here, he deals with black Hebrew Israelites. So I'm, I think I'm going to take up the talking point that this is Aryan philosophy that, that their champion, uh, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, these, these, these are Greek Aryans. So Aryan philosophy, that, that's a good talking point against the black Hebrew Israelites because that will trigger. It goes on to say, future decisions cannot be in every way foreknown as they have not yet been made. God knows everything that can be known, but God's foreknowledge does not include the undecided. Y'all see this? They say that God's foreknowledge does not include the undecided. <laughs> so if I haven't decided what shirt I'm going to wear, then God doesn't know it yet. He knows I got a blue shirt in the closet and he knows the potential for me to wear the blue shirt. He knows the potential for me to, red to wear the red shirt. Now, God is smart. So, and I'm, and I'm speaking as an open theist right now. God is smart. So if I wore the red shirt yesterday, then God knows that it is more probable that I won't wear the red shirt today <laughs> unless I'm the kind of guy that wear the same shirt every, you know, two, three days in a row. He's smart enough to know that too. But the probability of me not wearing the red shirt two days in a row is higher. So they believe that God is making calculated risk. He's making educated guess based on what he knows about us. 
And they, in some sense, believe that this is still giving God the knowledge of. So there was a prior comment over in our side chat that says, I don't think God cares about what color shirt we're wearing tomorrow. I think so as well. So I don't necessarily think it's uh, an object of knowledge that God cares about to know what color shirt we're wearing is probably not significant. And that's that's one possibility that we also should consider that maybe there's knowledge so trivial that God doesn't even care about knowing it. That is a possibility. Of an almighty God. But I'm here to tell you, no, that limits the knowledge of God. God isn't just making calculated risks. God knows the decisions I'm going to make. But they say God knows everything that can be known, but God's foreknowledge does not include the undecided. Let me keep moving. In Pinnock's view, again, one of the foreknown scholars of open theism, in Pinnock's view, if God has perfect knowledge of all human decisions, no, I'm sorry, let me, let me reread that. If God has perfect knowledge of all human decisions, our decisions would lose significance. That is correct. Clark Pinnock is correct when he states that. we we It's not free will. They're not decisions. They're not from us. We're just biomechanical robots uh, performing according to a set of inputs, which we were fed, and uh, we spit out an output that's determined by events outside ourself. That's not, it's not internal choice. It's not free will. We're just biomechanical robots. I mean, what's, we're like puppets. This is what they claim. Yeah. If God knows I'm going to yes. wear the blue shirt, then I got to get up and just robotically put on the blue shirt. There's yes. no significance to my choice because I'm simply doing what God foreknows that I'm going to do. This is what the open theist is pushing against. This is what they're arguing. Yes. <laughs> However, this is a fundamental presupposition of the open theistic worldview. What people don't realize is this development requires a major altering of one's view of who God is. And here's where the open theists go wrong. Protecting human free will has become more important to them than protecting the sovereignty of God. And again, this is an attack on anybody. I want to make that clear because many of these, these are good people, right? And they're simply trying to harmonize what they think the scripture is teaching. But what they don't understand is that they've overstepped the boundaries to protect human free will and have robbed God of his sovereignty. One must totally change their view of God and make false accusations against others as if they have accepted some philosophy. I do like the armchair psychology. These are their motivations. It's like all the open theists are like, those are our motivations. He's like, yes, they are your motivations. You're like, no, I... I, I, I honestly, I don't care, but you care very deeply about these things. <laughs> Philosophical reasoning about God that doesn't exist. So they'll say, you know, that's platonic, you know, and all of this stuff, right? Here's another quote from Pinnock. Pinnock says, God created a dynamic and changing world, and he enjoys getting to know it. It's a world of freedom capable of genuine novelty inexhaustible creativity. Boy, that sound good, don't it? And real surprises. Yes, it does sound good. So it's a very good rhetorical thing to do is to talk about God's creativity, God's innovation, God thinking and reacting. There's there's the people who are who point to the verse and they say, 
uh, God's knowledge is infinite. Well, the ver it's the it's, it's actually not talking about God's knowledge. It's talking about God's innovativeness, God's creativity. This is an open theistic proof text that God can do things. God can think. God can respond. God's creativity is endless. And people like creativity. And so this is a rhetorical strong point, which also happens to be very true within the Bible, God's innovation and creativity. There was that book that uh, Wild at Heart, which talked about God as a risk taker. And so taking God and putting him as a risk taker is also rhetorically well. That book sold millions it was it was a international phenomenon and, and like every every single bible study would like go over this book and read this book and all these men's groups would read it it sold very well because rhetorically it, it it's a very hard-hitting point and so we should say yeah god is a risk taker he made a risk in taking in in making man uh he took risks in his relationships with people and not always did they turn out his risk in appointing King Saul as king over Israel did not materialize. His, his, his goals and dreams and desires, he had to regret his own actions in making Saul king because God is fundamentally a risk taker. This is a world in which people face trade-offs. In classical theology, they don't want God facing trade-offs. They think that God could have his cake and eat it too, uh, despite the world around us, what we see. God faces trade-offs. If God does something, that precludes God from doing something else. If, if God wants to uh, give us free will, uh, he could, in fact, fill heaven with all of us, but then we're going to be in heaven with Hillary Clinton. And who wants that? And so, yes, it is a possibility that God saves all, but you know, at, at what expense? What are you giving up in order to get that thing? Uh, everyone, even God, faces trade-offs. Risks. God's a risk taker. He uses innovation. Yes. Pinnock says, I believe God takes delight in the spontaneity of the universe. Rachel, welcome to the stream. Are you there? Hi, Chris. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. So what do you think? I just got on. I think it's pretty exciting. You're talking about uh you're talking about uh what Eldr book is this Wild at Heart with John Eldridge? Well, yeah, because uh brother Mike here was saying that uh well, he gave props to the open theists for talking about God's innovation and creativity. And he said, oh, this sounds nice, right? And so when you say, oh, that sounds nice, right? You're, it's, it's his rhetorical strategy to say, that's a rhetorical strategy. And so you shouldn't give it as much weight because I'm using this rhetorical strategy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> But uh, I, I, I do think it's a good point that he makes that we should focus on that in debates because rhetorically it is very good and it also it happens to be true and god enjoys continuing to get to know it in a love that never changes y'all see that like they're saying that god enjoys this the spontaneity you know, like, oh, like today, the changes that can take place and the spontaneity of the human decision. They believe that this is the uh, the creativity that God enjoys with the world. <laughs> Pinnock assumes that God, a God with perfect knowledge and perfect control of the world cannot love and enjoy his creation. So they believe it's boring. You know what I'm saying? They believe that God is basically winding up the clock and watching it tick. You know, there's no spontaneity. 
There's 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 no creativity. Yeah. So they believe in the inexhaustibility of God's creativity in that God can respond to our decisions on the spot. Yes. When we make them, he doesn't have to know them in advance. Pinnock sees no issue with having an all powerful God who is still learning. I want y'all to now this here is interesting, right? Right. This here is interesting here. Still learning. Oh, I'm getting to the scriptures, G-Con. You just hold on. I'm <laughs> quoting the people you got your doctrine from, my friend. I I don't think the G-Con's ever read that God with perfect knowledge of perfect control of the world cannot love his creation. They don't have a problem with an all-powerful God who is still learning and capable of being surprised. Now, now again, some of them will push back on the word surprised, right? They'll say that, no, no, it isn't that God is surprised because he knew all potentials. But when we use the term surprise, we mean that he did not exactly know the decision. So in that sense, he is coming into knowledge in that moment. So that's how we're using the word surprise. He didn't know I was going to put on this blue shirt today. Right. He may have made some calculated risks. He may have guessed and said, well, he's already wore the red shirt this week. He wore the he wore the purple shirt. He wore the green shirt. So it's probable he'll wear the blue shirt. Right. He he, he may. And so he could make some calculated assessments. But but he doesn't exhaustively know that I will absolutely wear the blue shirt. So that is what we call a surprise. He is not aware of all of the outcomes of what the outcome will be put it that way he knows all the potential outcomes so yeah it, it's uh using using the non-central fallacy again again it's not no one's going to use the word surprised if if i have a podcast where i'm wearing a gray shirt somewhere you know that might surprise some people but uh yeah you know me picking a different color shirt you, you, you wouldn't usually say that someone's surprised by it you know it's just like oh yeah. gee they just picked a different shirt. Okay. <laughs> surprised. Surprised has some connotations like, oh, oh my, wow, look at that. Like, and so maybe the learning is probably the most technically correct way to describe God acquiring information that he didn't have before. And so he takes issue with learning, but he actually wants to change the discussion to use the word surprised probably because it's rhetorically more effective. Yeah, I think it's definitely a rhetorical um, strategy because when you hear someone say, God was surprised, you get this emotional reaction that um, makes you think less of God in a way. But when I think about my own children and how they pick out their clothes, I'm not surprised when a kid picks out a shirt that I know is in his closet. I don't understand why he thinks that that's a surprise uh, for God to find something out about what someone chose. I don't understand that word. Well, and, and uh, one thing that people might not consider is surprise sometimes can be a really good thing. And so uh, when uh, my wife showed me a video of my little girl and she's got a diaper on her head and diapers on her hands and diapers on her feet and she's walking <laughs> around like, bop, 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 bop. <laughs> like, it was surprising. It was so cute. It was just ridiculous. And so, yeah, I was surprised in a good way. And so um, you do see indications within the Bible 
like God singing over people, God watching what Adam's going to call the animals, things like that, which there could be like uh, uh, pleasant surprises, but they want, they want the negative connotation with surprise and they don't want to focus people that surprise could go either way. And, and what they say is a surprise. Normal people wouldn't say is surprising. Uh, who cares what color shirt I wear? And no one's going to be surprised. They're like, what? What? <laughs> They'll just say, oh, okay. Yeah, you're, you're just wearing a different color shirt. Yeah. And so you'd say nonplussed information gathering. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't know the actual outcome. Brothers and sisters, that is a problem. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you that's a problem. Let's just stick with me. I'm, 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 I wanted to put this uh, together so y'all be patient with me. I'll be through here uh, in just shortly here. But we got to come to understand the theology behind the doctrine of open theism. Right. So I wanted to do a scholarly presentation here using quotes from their primary scholars. OK. All right. Here's another things that Clark Pinnock says or or here implications let me put it that way of the beliefs of Clark Pinnock in all open theists number one this is a dramatic revision to Christian thinking and beliefs held for the last two millennia by open the scholarly is not, elite is not something that can be traced back you all this is something that is recent. Uh, again, Augustine did not encounter the idea of an incorporeal God until he was in his 30s. Normal Christians the world over did not hold these elite ideas about the nature, character, and makeup of God. They just believed that God was a powerful being uh, controlling the world in some fashion, ruling from on high. That's what the common people believed. And so... He's taking a very elitist view, a philosophical view of people who actually they lay out their philosophical traditions. Uh, Justin Martyr says, hey, I went through the best school of all. That was Platonism before I came to Christianity. And then he said, hey, you stupid Jews, you, you Jewish scholars, you guys believe God has a body. He doesn't. And so th this is the type of people who were the church fathers in Christianity. They they come from this Platonistic background, self-admittedly. And so the common people did not believe these things. And so Christians for the last two millennia have been wrong. Open theists complain that because sound biblical Christians can believe in a God that is incapable of doing that which is illogical, then we should have no problem with accepting a God that can only know what is logically knowable. So let, let me explain that. Here's an important point, y'all. We as Christians know that God cannot do that which is illogical. For example, <laughs> God cannot make a squared circle. That's illogical, right? God can't make a squared circle. Why? Because it is illogical. It, it, it's not logical to have a squared circle. It is a contradiction. So the open theists borrow from that thought. And they say, if we can understand that God cannot make a squared circle, then we should understand that God can only know that which is logically knowable. So if human beings have not made decisions yet, then it's not logical in their worldview for God to know it. Yes. So they believe that we're not 
we're not harming God. They simply assess this inability to know human choices to something that is illogical for God. Hashtag not all, not all open theists, but yes, that is generally true. God to know. They say just as it is a violation of I'm sorry, and it is it is not a violation of God's omnipotence to say that God cannot do the logically impossible. So, too, it is no constraint upon God's knowledge to believe that God cannot know what cannot be known. So they believe that human choices that have not been decided cannot be known. So it's illogical for God to know it. This analogy fails miserably. I want y'all to catch this. This analogy fails miserably. There are major differences. Even if the future does not exist for humans, this is, I want y'all to catch, this is very important. Even if the future does not exist for humans, it hardly follows that the future does not exist for God who is an eternal being who transcends time as humans know it. Okay, so earlier when I said I think Brother Mike thinks that God's in time, taking that back right now. Rachel, do you see any problems with what he just said? Um, yes. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll, I'll go first. Um, so if you're going to critique a philosophy or a theology, um, you need to be critiquing it from its own merits. And so if open theists don't think that God is outside of time, you can't say, oh, you guys fail miserably in your theology because didn't you know God's outside of time? Well, that's that's part of what's up for debate. And open theism states that well, maybe being outside of time is not a thing. It's not logical. And so in the same way that there can't be a square circle, God can't be out of time because that's a nothing. You there's that's that's a non-concept, and so he's assuming theology that uh, open theists fundamentally deny, and then using that theology, which he hasn't established, to critique philosophy, and he's not doing an internal critique of open theism. Yeah, it it seems like he's talking to um, people who already agree with him. So he doesn't feel like he needs to do a, an actual critique internally. He just needs to reaffirm with what they already think. Like, oh, remember, God's not inside time. And so they think that he is. So therefore, they're wrong. You know, right. it's kind of a... And it, it's almost dishonest to not present that open theists don't think God is outside of time. Um, it, it, concealing that from his audience might be... A rhetorical way to make sure that they they don't start questioning those fundamentals as well. So open theists are making a false comparison. Yes, the future is not known to us as humans, and the future has not happened for us as humans because we are temporal beings. But God is an eternal being who is not locked in to time and space. He transcends time as humans know it. God creating a square circle is logically impossible. But an eternal, timeless God knowing the future is not logically impossible. God is timeless. He, he is from everlasting. Watch this, y'all. Two everlasting. Wow, those seem to be two periods of time. 
And so if God is being related to time like that, that means he's not outside of time. Brother Mike, your proof text is a proof text against your position. You know, I was just teaching a history class on Monday, this last Monday, and I was talking to the kids about when was creation, what year was that that we think it is, when did Jesus come, what year was that, what year are we currently in? And then I went backwards. I said, okay, what about negative 200,000 B.C.? What about negative 2 million B.C.? What about negative 5 million B.C.? And I asked them, all right, who was there? And they said, oh, God was. And I said, yeah, because God has always been. He's always been eternal, no beginning, and he will always continue to be eternal. But I said, but he is, you know, now with us in the present. And all the kids completely understood it. They're like, yep, absolutely. So for little children, it makes it, it, makes it pretty obvious. But as soon as you become an adult, you want to try to complicate things a little bit, I think. So... Yeah, it's like, oh, I got, I got this special theology, and look at me, and oh, look, yes. God is timeless. Ha ha, isn't that? And it's, yes. It, it's it's almost childish in, in a way. Um, it, timelessness is a non-concept. All time travel movies inherently break down because you get reverse causation <laughs> and problems like this. It's, it's, it's a non-concept, and it's being treated as if it is a biblical concept, and and biblical phrases like this, from everlasting to everlasting, well, sometimes phrases like that are applied to non-God beings. Like the angels are too everlasting within the Bible. And one of their timeless verses that God dwells on high, and they say, oh, that means he's in eternity. Well, well, that's also applied to men. Men will do the same thing. And so it's it's not it's not that their proof texts actually say their theology. They, it, again, they don't do proof texting. They use talking points. They pull up a verse and then they say, they read the verse and then they just talk about their own theology without treating it with any intellectual consistency with other similar phrases throughout the Bible and how it, those are used. Because when things are to eternity in the Bible that are not God, it's just talking about temporal existence. It just means that they're everlasting. God is everlasting in the Bible. That's the definition. Not timeless. You don't see the timeless aspect. Right. Chris, what do you think um, this gentleman thinks when it comes to Jesus? Does, do you think that he thinks that Jesus could be surprised? Um, I think uh, when I interacted with him about Jesus's knowledge, remember, Jesus was not omniscient. He, uh, Mark 13, 32, he learned the day and hour at some point. It was, it was actually a really funny conversation. I said, well, yeah, Jesus wasn't omniscient, Mark 13, 32. And then a brother Mike here, I think it's brother Mike. He said, well, uh, he learned it by acts because he's talking about the day and hour there. I'm like, yeah, learning is open theism. Welcome to open theism. But uh, these <laughs> people do this thing where Jesus had some sort of latent omniscience that he set aside, but really, really had, but kind of didn't have. And he had all these God powers that make God, God, but they're kind of latent as well. You know, this kind of this, this weird idea and uh, re what really struck me was everyone's ignorance on the hypostatic union in that discussion where they all didn't understand that for God to in any respect gain knowledge at any point of time or gain any changes, that fundamentally violates what the hypostatic union is attempting to do. Because mm. uh, I was just thinking about when Jesus was talking to the centurion and the centurion came to him and Jesus said, I, he was amazed at the centurion is the word that the Bible uses. And so that amazement, that surprise that he had, and if Jesus hypostatically is God, then God was surprised. And so their, their, their proof texts are, um, 
unfalsifiable. So if Jesus is ever surprised, and he's surprised several times in the Bible, uh, to my recollection, they'll say, oh, that's just his human nature. But if Jesus says some some animal is going to crow three times before some event, they'll say, see, eternal, divine, unfalsifiable, foreknowledge of all future <laughs> events, proving he's God. <laughs> so uh... it's they want their cake and to eat it too. He's not waiting for the future to get here to be everlasting. He's from everlasting to everlasting, and his knowledge is infinite. You, you saw the Will Duffy debate where the where the guy pulls up the proof text. Oh, God is the alpha and the mega, beginning and end. And Will Duffy's like, yeah, those are points of time, yep. right? <laughs> your, your own proof text. It doesn't say he's timeless. It doesn't... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's like, well, this fits what I'm trying to say. And he's like what's your problem? And Will Duffy's like, my problem is that the, your proof texts don't say that God's timeless. This is a debate over whether God's timeless or not. And you, you've got no proof text. You got nothing. From everlasting to everlasting. So you cannot limit God because humanity is limited by time and space. You can't limit God to time and space. Their, their analogy fails miserably. All right. Open, theum is an, open theism is an unsupported claim that if God's foreknowledge included future human choices, then future human actions cannot be free. There are several Correct. responses to rebut the proposition that if God has perfect knowledge of future contingents, and remember, contingents are those uh, free human decisions or choices. Check this out in the side chat of... Uh um elder mike's channel g consciousness laron's dropping like 20 bucks to ask questions he, he's got the money he's a super the richest guy i know <laughs> <laughs> the human conduct in question can still be free in some sense watch this in classical rhetoric and logic begging the question or assuming the conclusion is an informal fallacy that occurs when an argument's premises assume the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it, right? He's going to claim it's begging the question. I, I did not foresee this. This took me by surprise. I'm completely surprised. So I'd like him to explain how this is begging the question. I'm just going to explain what begging the question does because this is what open theists do. Begs they are the question. begging the question. Mm. For example, the statement green is the best color because it's the greenest of all colors claims that the color green is the best because it is the greenest, which presupposes is the best. So the person making the statement already presupposed that green is the best color. And then he explains why green is the best color. <laughs> but that's begging the question. It is this type of circular reason, reasoning, rather, an argument that requires that the desired conclusion be true. This often occurs in an indirect way, such as that the fallacy's presence is hidden or at least is not easily apparent. Now, look, he just dropped another 20 bucks to Elder Mike. <laughs> Let me break it down for the open theists. This is how the open theists are begging the question. Open theists assume that if the future human choices are known to God perfectly, then those choices cannot be free. See, that's their assumption that has not been proven. 
Oh, yeah. So you just have to just look at the definitions of the words. Um, and so do, do you, let's make a prediction, think that he's going to go over the definitions of these words and then show how they're compatible? What's, what's your guess? Um, I'm going to put my money on no. <laughs> Uh-oh, that's what I'm betting on, too. Uh -oh. I don't have anyone to bet against. <laughs> Ask the G consciousness and he'll do it. Yeah, Laurent, Laurent, no, yeah, he's already seen this. He's over there in the <laughs> <Yeah>. chat. Uh, <laughs> Wait, got, here, he, here he knows it's had to happen. He has he, foreknowledge. He's got foreknowledge. <laughs> the theory of open theism is the response established upon this unsubstantiated claim. It does not follow that because the future is known perfectly, that the choices cannot be free. So they're begging the question. It is absolutely clear, church, that a human decision can be foreknown by God, and that decision can also be a free human choice. Now, this is important, you all. Bless you, G-Con, right? Hold on. You hang in there. I appreciate the super chat. He said, what scripture says God is timeless? I, I got you. I'll, I'll answer that in just a minute. <laughs> Mike is Plato's son. <laughs> Bless you for the super chat. I'm We're going to see who has the Greek thought in a minute. You, you must <laughs> we'll didn't see. hear the beginning, but let's, let's keep moving. Watch this. Foreknowledge. This is important for this for, this for even my reform brothers in, in my open theist friends. Foreknowledge is not causative, you all. Knowing something will occur does not necessitate that that thing that occurs was determined to occur. So this is a very classic straw man argument by people who hallucinate that open theists are arguing something different than the open theists are actually are arguing. And there was a big thread in, I think it was Soteriology 101 about this very fact in which they're like, oh, you guys say that the foreknowledge is causative. And everyone's like, nobody actually argues that. That's like, like literally like maybe like one guy. I, I met one guy once. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was uh, like Christian Tomlinson, that guy, so, um, ki kind of a YouTuber guy. I think he argues it, but you have to ask him to explain what he means. And then he kind of walks you through the logic and why he's, he believes it as such. So if, if you're even the people who might argue in that way have reasons that are beyond just making the claim itself, they have a deeper, a systematic reasoning um, that they go through to actually establish that foreknowledge is causative but no one argues that foreknowledge is causative but here's the thing that is true if god has unfalsifiable knowledge of truth propositions uh, of uh, future events then those future events are also unfalsifiable and so it's not necessarily the knowledge it could be coincidentally that the knowledge is the of the uh, truth proposition happens to line up with the proposition of that event, but the knowledge has to be as contingent or less contingent than the object by which it has knowledge. For example, if I know that there's a red car, you know, I didn't have to know that there's a red car. That red car would exist whether or not I'd have knowledge of it. But uh, the fact that I know using the philosophical definition of know in which, which knowledge is me believing the propositional truth value of something that exists in reality with that propositional truth value. If I know that there's a red car, 
then we can be certain that that red car exists. So if God has unfalsifiable knowledge of the actions that I'm going to be doing in the future, we can know that that action also is unfalsifiable, which violates our definition of free will in which human actions could go either way based on the exact same set of inputs. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of a way to simplify it for people like me, um, but I was thinking of objective truth and subjective truth. Objective truth is that which matches with reality. And so if God knows something in the future that's objectively true, that um, object in the future has to be reality. Yes. So it, it must come about. So the foreknowledge might not cause it. It could cause it. Something causes it, but it's not the person because that knowledge is set before that person ever exists, even to make that choice. Before I'm born, whatever I do tomorrow is already set from eternity before I even existed to make those choices. And so it's not me, whatever it is, it's not me. Right. And, and but it, I, <laughs> Uh, it's not my free will, and it's it's determined. It's fatalistic. It can't be thwarted even by God. God cannot thwart what he knows will happen using using the philosophical definition of knowledge that uh, Brother Micah has already given uh, and also using, um, uh, yeah, just, just using his own definitions. It is a fated, determined event that not even God can thwart. Yeah, so does he think that um, it's, that God can know it, but it doesn't cause it. Right. So he's, he's arguing that we could have free will in addition to God knowing what we will be doing and knowing it in an infallible way. And he does, he does within this conversation, we already went over it. He used the word infallible. And so God has this infallible knowledge of the future infallible. And then he also wants to use the word a uh, can it, something can be other than what God infallibly knows will happen. And so that's just a basic violation of the word can. There is no actual way that that other thing can materialize, that the other thing can happen if the if what does happen is unfalsifiable. Right. There is no cans. Again, language, it, when we start dealing with classical philosophy, language loses meaning. There's no meaning to free will. There's no meaning to can. There's no meaning to may. And it's it's just all situational. They like to use this language, but not define what they mean, because if they stuck to their own definitions, it's pretty, pretty clear where their contradictions happen. <laughs> Hello. I can videotape a football game. I can know the score. Already, somebody could tell me that the Detroit Lions will win 21 to 7. Now, you know, that's gonna take some foreknowledge because the Lions don't win many games. <laughs> uh, he's talking about making a record of the past. Okay, so you can make a record of the past. <laughs> Go on. What's the second part of this argument? So I could already know you, right? you can know the record of the past, which can't change and which is now infallibly set. Okay, second part of the argument. That doesn't necessitate that those actions are determined when I watch the video back in replay. <laughs> they still made human choices to call the plays that they called on their own. Just because I have knowledge of the outcome of like the game. Sam's comment. <laughs> you know what? 
Yeah. Because it's already and... happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> past people in the past don't have free will. They don't even exist. And so uh, the past doesn't exist. And, uh, and so actors in the past don't have free will to do other than what's already happened in the past. And so this is his argument. And he wants to treat God like watching a football game from a timeless perspective. And yes, the football game is now deterministic. If it's in the past, now it's determined, right? The, the past, you can't, you can't change the past. You can't go back and, and flip those around. What happens, happens, and it's set, and it's set infallibly. Doesn't mean that I, in some way, determined that they would only score 21 to 7. Foreknowledge does not guarantee outcome. It is not causative. Yeah, no one actually argues foreknowledge is causative. Again, that your knowledge of something is in as contingent or less than what you know, the object that you know. And so my I I don't have to I don't have to know that a red car exists for that red car to exist. But if I know that red car exists, then we know that that red car exists. And so if God knows a future event, the propositional truth value, that propositional truth value is in fact set. And if God unfalsifiably knows it as such, it's unfalsifiably set. There is no can. There's no alternative. There's no alternative universe or alternative past or Molinistic possible other world. Those don't exist. They're, they're not things if the future events are unfalsifiable. It's not the agent that makes the outcome the outcome. So Drew writes, it's such a bad but effective argument. And the only reason it's effective is because they need something to argue against that's not the actual point. And so the people who are drawn to these, this ideology, need they need a straw man to fight. Uh, and so they're drawn to this and they see this as, oh, here's our quick solution. And we'll start talking about this little phrase. And so it's it's more of a punting than anything. Rachel, your thoughts? Oh, I was just trying to go through and think if I've ever heard um, any of my Calvinist pastors or teachers talk about foreknowledge being causative. And um, I don't think a lot of open theists use that argument. But Right. So um, when Calvinists, Calvinists do believe that everything's determined. And so they are going to... Uh, argue against this Molinist position as well by stating, I don't think, I don't actually think they're going to make this this argument either. So I think open theists and Calvinists are united by saying, yeah, your foreknowledge is not causative, but it's still determinism that you're describing. Do you, do you think Leighton Flowers uses this argument against both Calvinists and open theists that we're common bedfellows because we think that? Yes, he okay. does do this. He does in fact do this. And he's been called out on it multiple times, but he keeps doing it because I, I think it's a convenient way to backhandedly dismiss open theism so he didn't doesn't have to actually consider the actual arguments of open theists because then, then he might have to claim affiliation with open theism and that would hurt his ministry. That's, that's my perception of what's going on. I was just thinking you should probably um, set up a debate with him, you know, just no, talk no. through it. <laughs> Again, so it's not a good idea to, like the Roger Olsons of the world, 
who are not open theists, but they're open theist adjacent mm. and they'll argue against Calvinists and they actually might lose some, some of their reach, some of their standing if they full on said that they're an open theist. And so you don't want to necessarily out potential closeted open theists because it's probably not a good tactical move. So maybe oh, Layton Flowers, maybe he's a secret open theist. I don't think that's the case, but that could be the case. But uh, what what do we benefit as a movement by converting that one individual? And what's our potential losses if uh, he loses standing in his current community, if that's the case? Right. I was just trying to think through um, someone who might better argue the idea that God's foreknowledge is causative rather than us who don't agree with that. Yeah, Kate Buss writes, this is this argument is my litmus test for whether someone has decently considered open theism. If they make this argument, <laughs> they haven't. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh. Right? I am not a determinist. Hello, somebody. Foreknowledge doesn't cause the action. Foreknowledge merely knows the action. It takes nothing away from God to know that I'm going to wear this blue shirt. <laughs> Neither does it take anything away from my free will because I freely chose to wear the blue shirt. God knew it and I freely chose it. Both are true at the same time. Hello, somebody. So he's All saying right. knew it Watch past this. tense, right? He's saying God knew it. And I fully chose it. So right. he's, he said it past tense that God in the past knows that decision. Yes. And God's timeless uh, somehow and temporal. And you can use temporal language about God and terms like foreknowledge. But uh, yeah, it's, it's not like a consistent theology that he's proffering. But it sound, he says it confidently enough that his audience cheers him on and uh, loves what he says, and they think it's a valid argument. Although it's it's not. He hasn't defined his terms. Um, he's, he's not understanding, internalizing, and responding to open theist actual arguments about this subject. Uh, well, he has great inflection in his voice, and his voice is very, you know, commanding. So. Right. I, we, we did cover this when uh, McLeod, Drew McLeod was on. We are talking. I said he presents very well. Um, he's very charismatic. Um, he enunciates his words uh, with pretty good clarity, he's a charismatic individual, and he has a lot to admire in his preaching and teaching ability. So it, there are lessons we could be taking from him on charismatic presentation. I need you to pay attention to this, my friend, G-Con. Open theisms, theism employs Aristotelian logic. Ooh, I want to see this. It was Aristotle that claimed that propositions about the future can neither be true nor false. They accuse us of Platonic thought, of Greek thought, of Westernized thought, but they are the ones that have embraced Aristotelian logic. Aristotle falsely assumed that because something can be perfectly known about the future, then that makes it a fixed event and thus determined. Remember, open theism is the overreaction to Calvinistic determinism. 
And so I, I've encountered uh, these claims uh, throughout my career, I guess. There's an individual who said free will did not exist before the Greeks. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he sent me this paper about here's a Greek philosopher who described free will. Therefore, in his mind, if there is one Greek philosopher that describes free will somewhere and invents the term or or formalizes the concept, it just didn't exist before that time. And so uh, you you get some sort of some of that problem here is our open theists, are we employing Aristotle and his philosophy because we read Aristotle and we're familiar with all of Aristotle's arguments and we're just incorporating his arguments in, in our belief system? Or is there just a loose alignment? Or was it that these arguments fit the biblical data so we adopted these? So there's, there's all sorts of those questions that we can ask. The, the thing with Platonism, though, again, is the church fathers readily admit to adopting Platonistic uh, theology into their reading of the Bible. And uh, Augustine, for example, states very clearly that the Bible was absurd. He thought the Bible was absurd until he write it, read it in light of the Platonists. So he needed Platonism to make the Bible not absurd. The, the, this... They go out and they, they confess these things. Because why? Because they actually championed and they loved the works of Plato. He was the grand philosopher. Cicero calls him like the god among philosophers. This is Plato standing in that time. And so they feel like they're actually doing their brand justice by associating Plato's works and teachings with what they're teaching. That They, they think they're giving themselves better brand recognition. So, yeah, I'm wondering if, um, as a Calvinist, if someone thinks that that is a bad thing to be associated with someone that agrees with them. Uh, so, I mean, if, if they think that Plato has the right ideas, even though he wasn't a Christian, why not be proud of that? Why try to hide that? And why try to be ashamed of that? Well, I, I think they'll say that, yeah, Plato was right about these things. And it's like, uh, coincidentally, right? But my point is that you, you do see the tradition and you see... You see the origin of these ideas and you see how they were incorporated into Christianity. Right. Rather than this just loose appeal to this one Greek philosopher once had some ideas and arguments that, that are kind of like yours mm -hmm. today. So therefore you adopted all those arguments. Like that that doesn't doesn't work like that. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta gotta do a little bit more. You gotta show me a little bit more to try to build some sort of some sort of uh, history of causation or uh, descendancy of ideas, something, give me something. That's what open theism is. It is an overreaction to Calvinistic determinism. And they have falsely assumed, again, this is begging the question, that because something can be perfectly known, then that thing must be fixed and determined. And that simply does not follow. If propositions about the future. So I was talking to my dad, was it today or yesterday? And uh, I, I had the discussion in which I pointed out that Colossians 2 is a direct reaction to Platonism that was going on in the church. And one of Bob Enyard's failings in his debate with Samuel Lamerson is that he, Samuel Anderson pointed out that Paul was influenced by Plato. And Bob Enyart took that as like an admission of defeat in the debate. I don't know if you remember that part of that interaction. Yeah, I don't know. And so um, I, it, it's 
Paul definitely had Plato in mind, had read Plato, been familiar with Plato, and was directly responding to Platonistic ideas in writing, writing Colossians. He does not seem to have adopted them. So when he talks about the separation of the physical and the spiritual, he'll write things like the fullness of the Godhead dwelt, dwelt in Christ bodily, which is a complete repudiation of Platonistic philosophy these ideas that the spirit can't be physical. And so when he makes these allusions to the analogy of the cave, he's doing it in a subversive sense in which he's subverting the concepts of Platonism. In Platonism, there's this super secret spiritual realm that you ascend to and you leave the physical world. Like the cave is the physical world. And outside of the cave is this, uh, this, this super or spiritual world that overlays the physical and the people who are in the physical world don't know that they're trapped in the physical world and they have to ascend to the spiritual. Paul brings it all back down to earth. And in, in the Jewish Christian tradition, um, our future hope is in a restored earth, a life on earth with God reigning from a new Jerusalem. It's, it's a physical existence, which interestingly enough, uh, if, now if we're on the subject of Augustine and Calvin, Calvin did affirm a physical new earth where uh, Augustine did not. He actually believed huh. in this ascension theology of, of uh of Platonism, where you ascend to the spiritual. And so that's that's one of their few disagreements. But John Calvin really did like Augustine. But uh, anyway, so he says, uh, Drew McLeod writes, that's why we're on this subject. I see my opening post. I found a Calvinist who believes John and Paul were inspired by Platonism. And, and I'll add, inspired in a good way rather than a bad way. So I do think Paul was inspired quote-unquote by platonism but he fully rejected it and responded to it in fairly clear terms that he's rejecting the core tenets of platonism so just a quick question so sorry what's the difference between uh Plat platonism and um, gnosticism in that time period well there's they have very close affinity and so plotinus actually writes against the gnostics and they have i, I think i did a whole podcast on on uh Plotinus's dealings with the Gnostics, there was a legitimate movement, and they were both Neoplatonic movements, but they just held uh, varying degrees of hatred for the material world. For example, uh, uh, Plotinus was more dualistic um, and neutral value when it came to the material world, and the Gnostics saw evil as more of an active component. Uh, things like that. I have a, the whole spreadsheet that I, I went over in one of my podcasts on the differences between Gnosticism, Calvinism, Augustinianism, and uh, Platonism. And so that, that would be good for this subject. But we, uh, my dad writes, Confessions, uh, chapter seven, in certain books of the Platonists, translated from the Greek into Latin, and therein I found not in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and then he ran out of the room. But basically, Augustine got from the Platonists the attributes of God, God's incorporeality, God's God's superior actuality, simplicity, his ineffability. And he writes about this in fairly explicit terms, and he tells us what he learned and how he learned it, his what he got from, from these individuals. So it's not like guesswork. It's not just like <laughs> we're just... We're just saying, oh, your theology is kind of like Platonism. It literally is Platonism that was introduced quite explicitly into, into the church.
is neither true nor false, then it would be logically impossible for God to predict the future. See, if this were true, God couldn't predict anything about the future. He could guess. I'm talking about with accuracy and with perfect knowledge. This is why the open theists believe God is deciding on the fly. Mike wore the blue shirt. Okay, let me make sure he don't get jumped by the Crips. <laughs> All right, <laughs> or, or the Bloods. I might wear the red shirt. Let me make you know. Now I got to decide. Make sure Mike don't get jumped by the Crips. <laughs> Come on, man. God is not deciding on the fly. I, I think the the color value of his shirts matter a little bit more than in, in my life. I don't know. I just I have that feeling somehow. <laughs> The belief that God does predict the future solely lies on the understanding that God absolutely knows what he's talking about. God is not taking calculated risk. God is not watching the stock market saying, you know what? This is trending. I'm going to put I think it's going to be this. No. God isn't taking calculated risks. He's not, he's not making educated guesses. Aristotle believed God can make a good guess. And I've even heard some of my open theist friends say this. So Drew McLeod writes so many claims. To watch what he's doing, he's using a lot of rhetorical analogies. And he uses like five of them all strung together. And so his, he's, he's reframing the issue in five different ways with five different analogies, all with negative connotations. And so rhetorically, this is actually a pretty good strategy for public speaking. And so watch, watch how he does and how he reaches his audience and how he talks to them and teaches them and incorporate those types of strategies and rhetorical devices in your own interactions. If you're ever giving a speech or a sermon or something like that, these these are good. These are good bullet points to write down and to incorporate. Analogies. Uh, emphasize those analogies. Use analogy after analogy. People identify with analogies. They like stories. Stories about people. You listen to some of these sermons, and uh, I, I was going to do like this mock evangelical sermon, like a charismatic evangelical sermon. Like they'll <laughs> they'll they'll grab like a random Bible verse, like uh, the Psalms or something. It's like God leads me beside still waters. <laughs> there was a story about a fisherman, and he was out on the ocean, and there was this huge wave, and it came, and a storm, and he's fighting it. And they'll go off of this random non-related story for like five to ten minutes and then it, it won't really have some sort of point i'll just be like yeah and then, then they were protected by the coast guard and that's how god is in our life something like that but just these long extended analogies because people identify with stories and so it's, yeah it's rhetorically it's effective but if, right. if you're listening to the sermon and saying <laughs> what, what kind of intellectual point is what what is why am i listening to this big story about some sort of random fisherman out on the ocean that has nothing to do with the pet what are we talking about it seems like just a way to um articulate and pad out some of these sermons sometimes but people apparently really enjoy it these 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 pre preachers who do those types of things get get pretty good followings god is taking calculated risk when you can't put God and risk in the same sentence. See, look at what he's doing. God takes no risk. Come on, y'all. <clears throat> and so he, he has uh, little short sentences. They, they don't have, they're not punctuated with a lot of dependent and dependent clauses and conjunctions. 
It's a short rhetorical device. God doesn't take risks. And so it's it's something that uh, rolls off the tongue very easy. It's something he could reemphasize multiple times in mm-hmm. his talking. It's something his audience can then, they could take that little snippet and then they could go elsewhere. They could propagate this little talking point uh, randomly throughout the internet. So, so notice how he says the sentence, you can't put God and risk in the same sentence. Yeah. Well, that is the same sentence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, the rhetorical uh, maneuvers don't have to internally be consistent. It's like the only thing that we don't tolerate is intolerance. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, they don't have to make sense. Um, these the the rhetorical statements that you put out into the world, and so that's what we're seeing here. God says it; it must be. Period. It has to be. He's not taking a risk. He's not hoping it comes to pass. He's not sitting back wondering. Yeah, David points out chicks dig stories. So if you want to draw <laughs> a woman into conversation, you, you know, number one, you have to keep her interested. And so you can't tell her like a boring story about your life. You have to you have to like use use certain emphases throughout the story and and uh, make 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 the story lead somewhere with some sort of exciting twist and plot. And then oh, she'll yeah. be drawn in. Uh, uh, my husband, when we first uh, talked on the phone for the first time, he talked to me for three hours about his activism stories. That was like the best conversation ever. I was totally drawn in. I was like, yeah, let's talk tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, uh, when he protested uh, the, what is that, the shepherd guy's funeral or whatever with the big <laughs> signs, the abortion signs. That's oh, so funny. Oh, <laughs> Oh, he has crazy stories. Uh, God knows his knowledge is perfect in total. Hello, this is important. All right. Open theism is an extreme position that is difficult to reconcile with much that scripture and orthodox theology affirms about God's knowledge of the future. All right. It does not reconcile with scripture or orthodox theology about God's knowledge of the future. All right. The the accusations of open theists are clearly hypocritical. (laughs) They accuse us of Western and Platonic thought, but their beliefs are derived from the Greek thinking Aristotle. This is that's what he means. He, he says Aristotle said something similar to something open theist once said, so one's derived from the other. This this is their counter argument because they actually don't have a really good argument when we point out the de facto historical fact that these these concepts of divine simplicity, ineffability, timelessness, these these ideas are directly directly implemented from Neoplatonism. Platonism, really, because there's there's not really any real difference between what Plato taught and what, what Plotinus taught. Uh, there's no real difference. It, it is Platonism, and it's in the Church Fathers, and they admit as much. Again, they wanted to associate Platonism with their brand name, with Christianity. They wanted the two to be associated in the minds of their listeners because it actually did them well it, to their target audience who already loved Plato. Plato was the superstar, not Aristotle. I... Stop accusing us when your beliefs come from Aristotle. 
When open theists deny God's future knowledge, they are not saying God is ignorant about all things in the future. God still knows many things will be true in the future. For example, if two plus two is four today, two plus two is four tomorrow. God knows that. So they don't think that God uh, doesn't know anything about the future in fairness to the open theist. Right. But how can God even know what he's going to do when all of his future actions are based upon future human choices that he himself doesn't know? So God doesn't even know what he himself is going to do <laughs> because he doesn't know what I'm going to do. And therefore, that's a really weird argument. It's like, uh, so I don't yeah. know what people are going to do, so I can't make any decisions. I don't know what I'm going to do in the future. It makes no sense. It's it's not a real argument. I get that argument a lot, though, with people when they're they're so intently focused on God's knowing everything that as soon as they think that if God doesn't know anything, that therefore he's like impotent all of a sudden. It's it's really bizarre. God God can't have plans for the future because he doesn't know what other people are gonna uh, like. Like I don't make my plans based on other people typically, and so for <laughs> for them to think that God makes all his plans based on people is is kind of ridiculous. So uh, it's it is this thing where uh, they have their philosophy and they want so desperately for it to be true that they will throw out any argument without giving it just just any bit of thought. And it's, and here's the thing, um, uh, brother Mike, he's interacted with open theists. He's used a lot of these arguments and he's heard their responses and he hasn't internalized the responses to his arguments. He, he's not, it's like you hear an argument and then you filter it out and you don't ever consider it again. Like for example, I think in the John Sanders debate with, uh, James White, uh, John Sanders pointed out various ways that you can read Psalms 139, not in a Calvinistic sense. And then James White in his debate with Bob Enyart, where it was bringing up the same Psalms 139 points. And there's never a time where he actually responded to John Sanders' arguments about Psalms hmm. 139. He never internalized it and thought it was necessary to actually respond to anything an open theist actually said about the point that he was re-bringing up. It's... It's really weird. Then in those cases, I'd probably try to find someone like John Calvin and send him that information and see if he responds to that at least. Well, they won't internalize it is the problem. So they'll hear responses, but they won't ever deal with the responses or then or ever acknowledge that the responses exist and were given to them already. It's it's a lot more convenient just to pretend that these things are not answerable. Do you think that's just because of who is giving it? I think it's because they really don't care. They're uh, a debate for them is not a debate. It's uh, it they're looking for talking points, and so they don't care if their talking points are refuted. And if their talking points are refuted, then they can't use those again. And so you'll 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 find people all the time. It's like you deal with them, you refute what they say, and then they won't respond to your refutation. They won't explain why your refutation is wrong. And then they'll just present the same argument over again. And this happens in all sorts of different areas of theology. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think it's just a, a mental mechanism people use 
because of cognitive dissonance where they right it's easier to just ignore things that are unfavorable right oh yeah absolutely like if, if you already have your certain way of thinking it is very hard to challenge yourself to think differently mm-hmm for he doesn't know the consequences on what I'm going to do because I haven't decided to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to help people understand how this is a problem. God doesn't even know what he's going to do tomorrow, y'all. <laughs> That's a problem. He doesn't. In open theism, God doesn't know what he's going to do tomorrow because he doesn't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> he may save me tomorrow. If I choose to believe tomorrow, he may not. He doesn't know, though. He doesn't know. You know, he may think I am a Mike D read a script. Yeah. Throughout the Bible, it says God tests them to know. He's like, if you do this, then I'll do this. And, and God has sometimes cascading contingency plans like uh, Exodus 4, which uh, Moses is like, what if they don't believe me? Well, then do this. And if they don't believe that, then do this. And if they don't do, do believe you then, then do this. Because God deals with contingencies in the Bible. <laughs> Those are just the risks for Moses, though, not for God. <laughs> today, So he may be leaning toward salvation. But he doesn't know I'm going to be saved. He doesn't know he's going to save me tomorrow. I, I, I don't understand why people uh, don't see this as a major problem. Open theist closes the door to divine foreknowledge, but then proceed to act as though God can know things about the future after all. It's just a contradiction. Yeah, I know things about the future, so it's it's not not that hard. Everyone, every single human being knows things about the future. You have to be like basically in a coma not to. Because truthfully, there's a lot God can't know about the future if all of if his knowledge about humanity and creation, which he created for humanity, can't be known until humanity acts. That's a problem, y'all. That's a problem. I'm going to get to questions in, in a minute here. All right. And we're going to get to the scriptures. Just You just hold on. According to open theists, God can have no knowledge about future human cont contingents. Because any alleged proposition about such human choices poses no truth value. See, they're more technical. They call us, uh, 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 you know, Greek thought, but they've devised a very Greek thinking system. They say alleged propositions about human choices possess no truth value because they haven't occurred. So they're neither true nor false. And yeah, that that is that is accurate. That this is a philosophical argument and a philosophical model that's being argued, and it is almost taken as an assumption by both parties that uh, there are such things in the world like objects and propositions which have associated truth values. It could be that that's an incorrect framing of the world around us, and uh, things don't quite work in that manner. And I, I have had some discussions elsewhere. I think I did it with uh, John Fisher about, about framing and models and propositions and object-based knowledge and how that might not actually fit reality. But in either case, you know, uh, this is the model that they're using. And so it's interesting that he's taking exception to it. He thinks that there's things in the future called propositions and those future things have associated truth values. And that's just Western thought. Uh, most Western people uh, think in those terms, and they model the world like that. But again, knowledge, as we commonly use it, 
doesn't depend on this model that we just described here. My knowledge of what color shirt I'm wearing tomorrow is not based on future propositions or objects which have truth values or contingent truth values or anything. It's just, it's just something that's I'm going to do. It's They haven't occurred yet and can neither be true nor false. God cannot know these things because there is nothing to know because the choices have not been made. They have locked God in to our Timex. That's what they've done. See, God existed before he said the evening and the morning was the first day. <laughs> he existed before he created the sun and the moon. That's time, yeah. See, either God knows future contingents or he doesn't. If he knows as few as one future contingent, then the door is open for him to know more. Thus, perhaps it is wide enough to know that God knows all future contingents. Open theists are inconsistent because they say God. I don't know if what he argued was a criticism or if he's describing what open theists believe or if he's arguing his own theology there. <laughs> Do you know what he's doing here? Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, so it could be that Brother Mike here believes that future propositions are contingent, even though they have unfalsifiable truth values. And so this is a criticism of open theism because he's saying that open theists might believe that God knows one contingent event, which in then that somehow leads to God knowing all contingent events in an unfalsifiable manner that he wants. So I'm, I'm not sure what he's doing. I can so, so is he saying that if if God knows some future contingents because they already are there, therefore he should be able to know everything, not just some of them. But and that's what he thinks the open theists are thinking because I, I feel like he's saying that they're they're they currently exist those future contingents. It's I maybe he's just out outlining what normal open theists believe. That God knows all future contingencies as contingencies. Is that what's going on here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll go ahead. Some future contingents. But but how can that be true? How can it be true that God knows some future contingents? It can't be. <laughs> right? Let's go, let's go a little further. Here's a quote from Richard Rice, a well-known open theist. He said, God knows the range of possibilities of a person's actions and what are or what will be the consequences of each of these possibilities. Right now, though, we I would agree that God knows all the ranges and possibilities. This is is in theological terms it's called middle knowledge. Right. Many it's it's not it's not hard to know the range of possibilities if there is only one. <laughs> If there's only one fatalistic, uh, unfalsifiable course of human <laughs> history. Of the uh, people who hold to, um, oh, my man just, just drew a blank real quick. Or God knows all but, negative but We believe that God has middle knowledge. So, yeah, I, I'll, you'll, you'll find Calvinists who are like, no, God doesn't have knowledge of things that would never exist, that ne never was determined by God. Why would anything think something so stupid? Those are like nothings. They have no, they have no, um, they're not even possibilities, you know? And so you'll find some Calvinists like that. And then some Calvinists will be like, oh, yes, God knows what would happen in each circumstance. 
I like the first guys better. We're like, those aren't even what are, what are we talking about? Those aren't things. Those are nothings. Right. We believe that. But that's not all he has. He knows he his knowledge is perfect. All right. Here's a dilemma for procreation for open theists. Now, check this out, y'all. I want y'all to check this out. The participation in the act of procreation <laughs> in marriage includes some decision making. These are free will activities. For example, okay. in order for me to have children, I must decide. I must have a future decision to have, uh, have intercourse with my wife in <laughs> order are, for the potential of her to get pregnant. <laughs> And have a baby. So that is based on a future free will activity. If this is true, then all future acts of procreation count as future contingencies. And in open theism, future contingencies cannot be perfectly known by God. So God doesn't know who's going to be here. <laughs> he doesn't know. He didn't know that I was going to be here. Okay. Because he didn't know that my father and my mother would decide to come together and have relations. I'm, I'm gonna go old school and have relations to be for my mom to be pregnant and have me yes. because that is a decision made. It's a future contingency that God could not perfectly know. Now he knew they potentially could have got together and could have potentially got, gotten my mother pregnant and potentially had a son. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know who's going to be here. Think about the problem. Yeah, what is the this problem? This means that propositions about those future acts of procreation must be, according to open theism, neither true nor false. So, so it was neither true I'd like nor to say false his that Bible I would verse. Want I'm trying to figure out if he's trying to do like a, like a Bible verse that says something like um, Josiah will be born in like 300 years, something like that. And maybe that's what he's trying to talk about. Like, God I, I think he is going to go for something like that. Or he's going to do the Matt Slick, like, God needed a list of names to die for. <laughs> if he didn't have that list of names, then he, <laughs> then that, the atonement couldn't happen. Or it's, a, it's a Schindler's list thing. You have to have a whole bunch of names. Yeah. It's like, you got, you got to have the detailed list of sins, <laughs> individual names to die for. Duh. <laughs> didn't you know that that's how the cross worked? <laughs> Did, did you know that? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. New information for me. I've I've read I've read the relevant portions about the atonement. I didn't see that information, so thanks for <laughs> thanks for telling me. <laughs> they be here because God did not know the future decisions of my parents on whether they would have come together or not. So God had no knowledge that there would have ever been an elder Mike Holloway. He had no knowledge of it. No, he didn't. Because that was based upon a future decision that he could not know perfectly. You see the problem for open theism? No, I don't. That it's a huge problem for open theism. What? This means, watch this. Okay. That no one, including God, can have any knowledge about either of these future acts or their consequences. So think about this. And and we'll get to it. If I created the computer, right? which was a free will volitional decision. God could not have known that because he did not know whether or not my parents would come together and have me. That could not be perfectly known. So he didn't perfectly know that I would be here. Therefore, he couldn't perfectly even know what I was going to choose to do. 
So he doesn't even know future things that will come into existence because the future decisions have not been made by future people he did not know would be here because he does not know future contingencies. No. Do you see the problem? No. Do you see the problem? No, I'm waiting for the bubbles. Not even God can have knowledge about future action. Okay, so um, I think his real argument is that open theists don't believe that God has propositional knowledge of future events in this unfalsifiable sense that he wants to use the knowledge. And I just say, yeah, yes, that is the argument. What's the problem? So I've kind of heard this argument before with women who I've talked to about this and a lot of it is so emotional. It's well, then God wouldn't know that I, you know, that I have the right one. Like this is the husband for me because it was chosen for me by God, basically. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of scary for them if God doesn't know that I was going to marry him. Then you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like this fear almost. I don't know. It, it, it's a little bit insane. He's like, did you know the implications of open theists that they believe? That God doesn't know the true truth proposition of future events, isn't that terrible? Do you see the problem there? It's like no, that's actually what the argument is. Is Richard Rice? You just read him, and he said that all future events are contingent and un, not not uh, fatalistic. It's like that's not what I don't see the problem. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. Or consequences. Now, they say that they they know, you know, the potentials of the choices, but how can he know the consequences when the choices to make about those consequences have not been decided? Okay, so what open theists like to do, uh, I'm not sure if he's got the mental model of the neo-Molinist open theist. So a neo-Molinist open theist believes that God has all knowledge of all past events, present events, and all future contingent events. And so... If there's a fork in a path and someone's driving a car and they could go left or right, uh, he'll know what will happen if they go left and what will happen if they go right or what will happen if they swerve off the road at any which point on that road and has a logical tree chain of consequences out from every possible contingent uh, deviation in in the matrix, we'll say. any Any rogue atom... If the rogue atom pops this coordinate or this coordinate, God will know what will happen in all those circumstances. And so if we have an opportunity for free will act, God doesn't know which free will act we're going to take, but he knows what will happen with any outcome of those that free will event, whatever course that we do try to make. And so I don't know if Elder Mike is actually mentally contemplating this tree of possible worlds that neo-Molinist open theists affirm that God has knowledge of, right? And so he would know a contingent future or multiple contingent futures which have Elder Mike and all possible Elder Mike decisions and an Elder Mike that never exists uh, and alternative Elder Mikes who are not Elder Mike who also never exists and all possible actions that those individuals will never make because they never exist. And so that's the neo-Molinist idea. Now, not, not all yeah. not all open theists are neo-Molinists, but just the fact that God didn't know for certain Elder Mike would exist does not mean that 
the open theists don't think that God knew the possibility he would exist and the different outcomes for the various free will decisions he would make throughout the course of history. <laughs> so just think about the web that trillions and trillions of people who are born could possibly have been somebody different based on which sperm got to the egg first. Yeah. And think of all the sperm. That's what is it like thousands and thousands of sperm each time? Yeah. Uh, this this web is immense. It's it's absolutely insane. So Yeah, and so that that it, a lot of open theists will affirm this type of omniscience in God. So Eliza writes, what is your definition of free will? Free will is an internal act that is not determined deterministically by pre-existing characteristics outside ourselves. And so it uh experiment to prove if we had free will or not would be if we could replicate the exact same conditions and the exact same mindset with the exact same arrangement of molecules within the universe and uh, have an actor pick an alternative thing than what he picks in, in that circumstance. So like, let's say we were able to upload our mind to a simulation and we could recreate, recreate the world multiple times and put the actor in the exact same situation. If, he could possibly pick another another outcome for any particular situation. He would have free will. It wouldn't be deterministic because it's not the universe which is causing that decision. And so free will would be the ability to internally make that decision and not from outside ourselves. The outside things might influence us. I say, hey, kids, clean the room or else you're going to get any spanking. That spanking will influence them, but <laughs> let me tell you, not always. <laughs> Sometimes they pick different, despite my influencing uh, influencing actions. And so free will would be the ability to internally make decisions, not from outside ourselves, not, not, not uh, deterministically determined from outside ourselves. And so let's say God overwrote our free will. And so I wouldn't. It, God conceivably, he wouldn't be able to override our free will because then we wouldn't have free will. So he could just like remove it. But to like, even if uh, uh, there, there was a movie, I think it was called Shooter, in which a guy connected a device to a person and made them put a gun to their head and shoot themselves. That's not really overriding someone's free will. That's just coercing them into action. The person has a free will independently of that and can make internal decisions within their own mind, despite outward coercion in their actions. I don't know if all of that makes sense, but uh, that that's free will. And if, if, if the, the universe is faded or deterministic, that means our free will decisions can, our free will decisions, our decisions can be known before we exist to make those decisions. You, you'd be able to look at all the inputs, all the arrangement of molecules, the specific uh, makeups of our body when our bodies come into existence, and with perfect accuracy, be able to predict the results of our decisions before we even exist to make those decisions. That, that's determinism. And that's what classical theism is. It's determinism in which we are just input-output robots, and any of our actions can be known if you know the arrangement of molecules and internal mindset of us at any particular time. That, that we're making those decisions. <laughs> a guy once argued with me that because I can't jump off a cliff and then fly, I don't have free will. That, that's, that's, <laughs> a, 
that's a pretty common thing, actually. The people like, oh, if if you put someone in prison, you're violating their free will. You're not you're violating. What are we gravity? Gravity violates our free will because gravity exists. I don't have free will. It's not what free will is. Open theists must admit that God doesn't know which woman will marry which man. <laughs> so he didn't know Elder Mike would be here because he didn't know that my mom would marry my father because that was a volitional free will decision that both of them made. And he could not have known that until they made it, until they made the decision. God can guess. He may say, well, his dad likes him tall. His dad likes him small. His dad likes him short. So the potential for him to marry her exists, but he can't know that perfectly. God is guessing. <laughs> now he can guess, you know, if they send out. Yeah, I get, I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing if I walk upstairs with some candy in my hands that my kids will all be like, yeah, I want candy. It's just, just a guess. Just a guess. This, this, is, this is how language is used and misused in these discussions it's it's the non-central fallacy in which they want to be technically technically right but actually on face value wrong or incorrect it's not guessing if me saying my kids are going to want candy if i offer it to them is not guessing wedding invitations god could say that presumably they'll get married and that's if they don't volitionally change their mind so he doesn't know if they're actually going to get married therefore he doesn't know that they'll my mother will act so yeah michael mouse has a good phrase when he talks about the corporate media he says their headlines are truthful but not accurate like so you'll they'll write misleading headlines which technically are true but actually are just misleading the audience to, to think something else is happening than what actually is happening. And so this is what happens in these debates in which people want to use rhetorical devices to try to guide thinking processes rather than actual arguments. They'll, they'll use these technically true solutions that are actually false. Again, if you Google worst argument in the world, it's the non-central fallacy. Actually get pregnant by my father and I will be here. God doesn't know any of that. Right. I'm going to get to the questions, G-Con. Appreciate the super chat, though, my brother. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm a, and so remember the questions. Yeah, G-Con's uh, basically put a couple of uh, Pastor Mike's kids through college by now. All right. So he doesn't know. Do you all see that guy got to wait for the wedding invitation to go out just like you. You know how you're watching a movie and, and you suspenseful all to the end because you don't know which way it's going to turn? Well, that's how God is doing creation. He doesn't know. You know, it's like, you know, when I was young growing up, I used to watch Batman, right? <laughs> that old school Batman. And you all remember Batman would get in trouble, right? He'd be tied up. You know, the Joker would have him. So look at look at his speak, speaking technique. He jumps into this uh, nostalgia story that we can associate with. And he's, he's using these... He's in, in fluctuations with his arms. He's talking to me being tied up and he's so excited about this. This, this is, this is very good. Charismatic preaching. Very good. We, we need to be taking notes. And he like five minutes before the bomb go off. And then Batman will go off for that week. It will say, you know, and then you'll get this turn. Anybody that's old school used to watch Batman, you'll know what I'm talking about. You know, so the narrator will come on and say, will Batman get out of this dilemma? <laughs> He's talking about like the, the Adam West Batman, like <laughs> way back in the day. 
How will the Cape Crusader come out of this? Tune in next week and let's find out if Batman will get out of this dilemma. Well, they got God saying, will Mike Holloway have that child? Will he? Yeah, uh, there's the comments all over here that's uh, over here. Where did it run off to? Everyone's like, I don't think God cares about this stuff. And so I don't think God, that's not my picture of God in heaven saying, will Mike have this baby? What's going to, what's Mike? I I don't think he cares that much. Uh, Have whatever kid you want. Just, I, it's just do your thing. It's like, okay. He applied for that position. (laughs) <laughs> you know, God is in suspense just like we are. Why? Come on. Why y'all? would you say that? Come on. I don't think God is in suspense about what job Mike Mike is going to get. I just throw that out there. Yeah, Chris, look at the comment to the side on Let God Be True. It says, the Bible proves that open theism is false because it covers all of time, even into the end of the world. Future. <laughs> Parentheses. Future. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, never mind the so, fact that certain details in Revelation just cannot happen anymore. Um, like the, the temple was standing at that time, and the letters were written to churches which no longer exist. Well, just put those facts aside. It, that Those are the end of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certain people died already. They weren't able to see the end. So. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Somebody like, bam. We don't know. And I would listen. I love Batman is my favorite superhero to this day. <laughs> I'll watch next week because somehow Batman will make his way to the belt. <laughs> and he had some everything in that yellow belt that would get him out of the dilemma and he would get out. And we knew every week he was going to get out, but we still came to the TV in great anticipation. See, see, even though we knew Batman was going to get out because it's his show. But God doesn't even know what we know about Batman. <laughs> so uh, notice the flip of uh this could have gone either way so if i was an open theist and i was given the story i'd say look we're, we we watch this show it's batman it's exciting he punches the guy and there's a big pow and w- what we know we know Bat- batman's capable and he's innovative and guess what he has things in his belt that we didn't know about he just pulls it out. He's fighting a shark. He has shark repellent. He has it on hand. He anticipates. He understands. He can innovate. He can accomplish. He can do these things. And we cheer for him because, you know, we know Batman. We love Batman. We, we love his character. And we know that he's going to pull through no matter what. And how much more so, here's the open theist telling the same story. How much more so is God, your loving father in heaven? Who? How much more capable is God? What kind of utility belt does God have? God can do things. God is capable. God is competent. God is confident. God is overcomes, overcomes the problems in life. And we could cheer along with him as God, as God prepares for, anticipates, and fights any problem that comes his way. So the story rhetorically could go, could go either direction. It's, it's yeah. so the direction he takes it is uh, Batman does these things, but we have confidence in Batman because we know how plots work. <laughs> yeah. And and, uh, and uh, Batman's not like God. And so. 
Well, and we have confidence in God because we know that he is all powerful and can do what he wants to do to get stuff done. So it's kind of a. So this is, I think this is an object lesson in how stories can be used or misused or, or irrelevant to actual <laughs> points that are, are no, but Batman made. is not irrelevant to open theism. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, man, yeah, yeah. It's it's it is fantastic at his you know presentation, and you definitely just jump in right away and you remember. Oh yeah, I remember watching that Batman. I remember them doing this, and so it's it's definitely very exciting to listen. Yeah, to you them. get you get drawn into it, and so it. Just, I like how he draws the story out, and then he says, and. Open theism is wrong. I think that's our story. And open theism is wrong. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, when I was little, you know, they used to have this Dairy Queen commercial and then it comes on and, you know, the frosty cup. It was, you know, it made me really want an ice cream. But God's not like that because God doesn't have desires from outside himself. He's self sufficient. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> hey, what is this? <laughs> yes, sir, my Granger. I'm still waiting for the verse on marriage or, or like Come on, on here, y'all. He's gonna pull out. You got God. No, that that was his point. That uh, <sighs> that because I was, I was Pastor, really hoping it wasn't. I was really hoping he'd like move on to like a verse or something. So because the probability of him specifically existing from time eternity is so small that God couldn't have known that possibility could have existed. That was literally his point. <laughs> that was literally his point, and so um. <laughs> Um, he he wasn't. Yes, even... he is. <laughs> David's right. Uh, David says, "I think Batman is gay." Oh no, it's it's Robert Patterson who is actually pretty fantastic. He was he's the new Batman's going to come out. And it's going to be Robert Patterson, and so I'm kind of excited because that was the guy from Twilight. And every interview he did about Twilight, he just ripped on on the story and the writing and his character. <laughs> you got to just watch him just. Just uh, just rip them, just dump on the Twilight Saga, Robert Patterson. <laughs> but uh, anyways, we'll hit play. Not saying will Mike get saved? Will I write his name in the Book of Life or not? Tune in. Let's see what Michael does. No, God isn't waiting on us to know. And he yeah, George Clooney tried to make his version of Batman gay. That was when they put like the nipples on the bat suit or whatever. Wow. And so um, you remember when we were little and that movie came out and it was a huge flop that nobody liked. Well, God did not anticipate that terrible of a movie or else he would have prevented it. I don't know if I was making an open theism sermon or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Drew McCall says, go watch The Rover. With Patterson and Guy Pierce is fantastic. I told my subordinate to go watch it. He watched it. He's like, I'll never forgive you. He's like, that was a terrible movie. <laughs> like, that's a fantastic movie. It's so good. But he's like a Michael Bay fan who likes like the Transformer movies that are just constant action without any plot. But the rover is actually Guy Pierce does a fantastic job. Um, uh, not as good as the proposition. The proposition is one of one of my favorite movies of all time. That's also Guy Guy Pierce is in that. And it takes place in like Australia. And so Drew McCloud knows all about Australia by proximity. Doesn't have to determine my actions to know it. Right? Come on here. <laughs> Let's go. Right? 
God can guess, especially if the wedding invitations go out, that those two involved may be married because it is his present experience. So God. Well, we do have a biblical story about wedding invites, right? Feast invites and which uh, God actually propositioned all called all sorts of people to come. And then they just refused them. So he got like mad or whatever. And then he sent out servants to go round up everyone else. And then those people came. And then God had to uh, reject some of those people who came and came in an improper fashion. And so it, it's open theistic that God attempts various strategies to get people to respond and gets angered when things don't turn out the way that he wants them to. And there's God has to react to changing circumstances. Yeah. We, wasn't, isn't there like a, prof, a parable about like the bridegrooms waiting with like their candle lights, you know, they're like, don't let your light go out if you're sleeping when the bridegroom comes. Yeah. Do you remember what that was about? Yeah, it's just, it was basically like the apocalypse is at hand. So uh, just watch and wait for it. <laughs> right. But the ones who didn't were the ones who are foolish and didn't get to go. Right. Like they're the ones who didn't make it. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's warning to individuals. God is experiencing things just like humans are. He doesn't know it because he, he hasn't experienced it. You know, it's just bad. Yeah, so if God gains experiences, then God gains knowledge. And so that's why experiential knowledge has to be denied to God in classical theism, because he can't change in that sense in which he even gains experiential knowledge. And he doesn't have all experiential knowledge. That's an entire class of knowledge that classical theism denies to God, because that creates interrelatedness, which they can't have with divine simplicity. All right, I'm I'm almost there, y'all. Watch this. Here's another. I don't think you're there. Open I don't think you're almost there. God the does story. know all that will follow deterministically from what has occurred in the past, and can, as the ultimate psychologist, check this. They call God the ultimate psychologist. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> God's not the ultimate psychologist. He can predict with great accuracy what we as humans will freely choose to do in various contexts. Man, I can do that. <laughs> I can you? Can, can you? I know if you don't like liver, that if you had a choice between liver and chicken, you'll choose the chicken and limiting God. But they say he can, he can, he can predict with great accuracy what we as humans will freely choose to do in various contexts. God, for instance, might well be able to predict with accuracy whether a couple will have a successful marriage. But since we believe that God can know only what can be known and because what humans will do in the future cannot be known beforehand, we believe this is the open theist talking. We believe that God can never know with certainty what will happen in any context that involve freedom of choice. We believe, for example, yeah, so certainty is probably with open theory should probably avoid that because a lot of times in common language, we'll say, oh, we're certain about this. Oh, I'm certain that uh, my kids will want candy if I go ask them. And so certainty is not like unfalsifiable certainty. So if we should probably, if, if we're interacting in these conversations, use language that actually describes the position that we're fighting against does god unfalsifiably know something is that is that what we're talking about are the choices that we make unfalsifiably one way or the other unfalsifiable actually gets more to the heart of 
what's at discussion rather than certainty because certainty is loaded and and you, then you start running into the non-central fallacy as well. Well, that to the ex that to uh, that to the extent that freedom of choice will be involved, that God would not necessarily know beforehand what would happen if the couple were to marry. So God doesn't even know if my wife and I are gonna get divorced. He doesn't know. I mean, we've been together 26 years, going on 27 years. So he can calculate that probably they're going to stay together. They've stayed together all this long. They've been faithful to each other all this long. But he doesn't know with accuracy whether or not five years from now she gets tired of me. <laughs> get tired of me doing these lives late at night and leave me. <laughs> he God doesn't really know that. He can assume she probably won't because she hasn't gotten tired this far. But he doesn't know with accuracy. All right. <laughs> Divine guidance rather must be viewed primarily as a means of determining what is best for us now in the present. Basinger says this, God can be positively wrong. In other words, God can have an assumption about us, me and my wife staying together that can be wrong. That is very problematic, you all. This so-called evangelical thinker holds G-Con. Listen to this. <laughs> so uh, I think his strategy here is, here's what open theists believe. Isn't it bad? The thing where you just read an open theist quote and be like, it's terrible. So he doesn't actually explain why it's bad or establish that it's bad. It's just apparently just bad on face value that... God can be wrong in circumstances like when God said, I thought uh, Israel would repent, uh, but she did not. And her treacherous Ju sister Judah saw it. it. He was wrong in his expectations. And so that's just the biblical data. So either you like the biblical data or you don't. Um, either way, that's fine. <laughs> All right, Rachel. Well, we're moving on about over three hours, like three and a half yeah. hours. And so I got to get going. And so it's, it's interesting. He hasn't gotten into any Bible verses so far. It seems like his argument is open theists say this. It's really bad. Trust me. And then uh, some misrepresentations of open theists, like the neo-Molinist uh, misrepresentation. And then some, uh, some very blatant misrepresentations, like open theists argue that God's foreknowledge is causative, which it, no one's arguing that. And so that's a blatant misrepresentation. And then you, you get some spattered, I guess, moralistic fallacy in with that. Like, oh, it's just, I don't know. So I don't think this has been substantive so far. Um, he did do a good job of finding relevant quotes from open theists. So he's he is presenting some of our points straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And I he didn't quote any quote that I necessarily disagree with. So that that is good. And I do think we need to take some speaking points from his presentation to incorporate into our own uh, speaking proficiencies. Do you have any closing thoughts, Rachel? I think that was great. So thanks for doing this. Talk to you later. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. We're ending broadcast now. Any questions, comments to put that down below or start a thread on the Facebook God is Open page. Thank you for listening.